Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is Monday, October 4th, and welcome to the Edutopia and FutureofEducation.com special show, Elevating the Education Reform Dialogue. My co-moderator today is Betty Ray from Edutopia. Betty, thanks so much for organizing this. Thank you so much, Steve. It's great to be here, and thank you so much for, to everyone for coming and to our presenters for taking some time out of their very busy days to help with this. It's a very important issue, and we're really excited to have everyone here. We do have a really fun program scheduled for today. We know that not everybody can stay the full time. We encourage you to stay for as long as you can, and then do know that the recording will get posted later tonight or tomorrow. We have added an hour at the end of the show for an open forum, so if you are interested in making sure that your voice was heard, we do encourage you to stick around for that. So that will start at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, which is a program that I run for Illuminate, my employer. Uh, so we want to give them thanks and encourage you to come to Learn Central, where you can use Illuminate for free. Uh, Microsoft's uh, Redo a program is sponsoring the Future of Education this month, so a shout out to them and Bing for, for their generous sponsorship. Coming up in November, our Global Education Conference, five days, all for free, all online, uh, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks, should be just terrific. So look for that at globaleducationconference.com. Coming up this week on Future of Education, uh, The Personalized High School by DiMartino and Walk. It should be a lot of fun. Other good guests coming up. You can see them there on the screen. If you've missed the session of Future of Education, do know that all the recordings are posted. Uh, ben Daly last week on High Tech High, Paul Peterson on Saving Schools, Montessori High School, Place-Based Education, Charles Fidel, 21st Century Skills, much, much more all at futureofeducation.com in the recording section. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Our first guest, Alfie Kahn, Kahn is not able to see the chat or anything that you would do on the screen, but we will try and communicate that to him. There are ways that you can indicate you know, how you're feeling or you're responding. There's a smiley face and a clapping hand down at the bottom of the participant window. There is a way when we move to Q&A for you to raise your hand. That's the hand with the large green arrow or the large hand with the green up arrow. Do go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard before you try and use the mic, though, because um, uh, we want to make sure that the mic actually comes through. Please also consider going up to View Layouts and switching to the Wide Layout. For a day like today with lots of chat, it'll be much easier for you to follow the chat. So that's View Layouts and then the Wide Layout. So there's a brief moment here where you get to tell us where you're uh, listening in from, look for the wand with the red star at the end, click on that, and then click on the map. And you can also uh, shout out in the chat your location, maybe the time and the temperature. Looks like New Zealand, Australia, a few in Western Europe, lots in the U.S., lots in Canada, Hawaii. Well, this is a U.S.-centric event tonight. That's not any great surprise wherever you are listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your participating. And we're going to move forward quickly because of Alfie's limited time. But here's the schedule coming up after Alfie, Diane Ravitch, then Deborah Meyer, and Chris Lehman, and then we'll move to our second hour, starting with Gary Steger. But for now, quickly we'll move to Alfie. And Alfie, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. 
So we have uh, four sort of standard questions we're going to ask each of our guests tonight. Uh, and it, please wax as eloquent okay. as you would like or, or move us in a different direction if you feel so inclined. But do you have a vision for teaching and learning that you feel is particularly important to communicate right now? Uh, this is where the macro meets the micro. Um, a lot of conversations these days, especially during this dark period of corporate-styled school reform, have led a lot of us to focus on the macro stuff. That's the public policy, the ways in which uh, we seem to think that more charter schools, bashing unions, removing uh, job protections from teachers, firing the bad ones, pushing test scores will solve problems. Uh, I'm interested also in making sure we don't forget the need to talk about the micro stuff, which is the pedagogy. I also think it's deplorable that we're no longer asking teachers, um, how do we improve our schools? How do we make sure that kids love to learn and are able to think about, about ideas in a, in a deep and systematic way? Uh, in fact, teachers, like kids, are treated as uh, either the enemy or people to be manipulated. Um, I have a vision which has been gleaned from visiting classrooms taught by teachers who are probably more talented than I was when I was there. And I've spelled out some of what that looks like in some of my writings, um, including a book called The Schools Our Children Deserve. Uh, to speak rapidly here, it includes bringing kids in on making decisions about their learning instead of just doing things to them. It means creating caring classroom and school communities instead of isolating kids or setting them against each other in competitions. It involves focusing on understanding ideas from the inside out instead of merely memorizing forgettable facts and practicing skills in isolation. Um, it involves integrating subject matter and a whole lot more. So knowing that uh, sort of the national story of education seems to be moving in, in, a, in a different direction than that, how, are, how could we help to bring yeah. the dialogue to that kind of uh, discussion? Well, Part of the problem is that the people who know least about how children learn, and incidentally how best to assess that learning, are the people with the most power to impose their ignorance on the rest of us. And regardless of political party, and even regardless of, I think, uh, being liberal or conservative on other issues, uh, there's a tendency for most non-educators to assume that a good classroom is one where the teacher is in control of the students, one where there is order that's paramount, where kids are learning a bunch of facts systematically, and one where the test scores go up. If you believe that, um, then some of the so-called reforms we're suffering from that are squeezing the intellectual life out of schools and threatening the whole institution of democratic public education tend to make sense. So in some ways, it's not just a matter of saying, uh, let's question this version of school reform. It's a matter of starting from the inside out and asking, what are we looking for? If our goal is to help kids become more and more excited about playing with words and numbers and ideas um, and more proficient at it, that will lead us in a very different direction than if our goal were to 
simply pump up test scores, or, and this is sometimes what the test scores are a marker for, if schools are seen primarily as just ways of um, preparing skilled employees who have the wherewithal and the correct attitudes when they are eventually working for Microsoft or whoever the employer is. So we have to make sure we keep the focus on what is the goal of schooling. And if the goal is really about what's best for kids and for supporting a democratic society, it will become much easier to challenge the nonsense that's being imposed on us now from up on Mount Olympus. So is there an, an, an inherent conflict between having the dialogue at a national level and, and getting to the, the ability for teachers and students to have a voice in the creation of education? Does the end result have to be more local control? Um, well, first of all, the challenge to the conventional wisdom and to the, the top-down, heavy-handed, um, test-driven approach to school reform, there are many entryways there, entry points. That can be done locally and nationally. It can be done by everything from conversations in our living room and on chat groups, letters to the editor, um, challenges you know, the garbage coming out of NBC, the LA Times, the Oprah Winfrey Show, uh, and so on. So that's national and local. Ultimately, though, I'm, I'm allergic to too much top-down control from centralized authorities, which is why I think every educator in the country needs to take a strong stand against the idea of national standards, currently called core standards, that would basically create the same approach to curriculum and perhaps to testing in every fifth grade classroom in the country. I find that chilling. Um, I don't pretend to have all the answers about the right way to teach or assess. I think there's room for disagreement. But what we're moving toward is an arrangement where there is no opportunity for disagreement except among a very select group of elites who get to decide what those standards are. So uh, I think the national conversation and national lawmakers have a role to play, but it's to support um, decision making in communities and to some extent in individual schools because for teachers it often feels just as oppressive to be told what to teach from the central office in their district as it does from their state capital or Washington, D.C. So we have a very interesting program this afternoon, and part of it depends on actually staying on time. So I know you have questions for Alfie. Uh, Alfie, we're going to let people ask questions first in the chat. Uh, and just for the sake of time, it's going to be harder to take an audio question. But if you put a question in the chat, that would be preferred. Um, I'll read one to you. While we're waiting for a question, if you were to write a manifesto or an education declaration, what would be one thing you want to make sure was in it? Um, much of what I've already said here, that um, the goal of learning for children is to do what's best for the kids themselves to help them become uh, excited learners and decent people, as opposed to seeing purely economic rationales for schooling, which seems to be the case now. And that tends to drive the worst sort of practices.
Okay, so we have 301 participants in the room. I haven't seen a question yet, so let's go to the audio. If you want to raise your hand to ask Alfie oh. a question, do so by clicking on the hand with the green up arrow. If you've asked a question in the chat and I missed it. I think we only have two minutes total. Two minutes left. Okay, we do have a question from Yvonne. Yvonne, I'm giving you the microphone. Turn it on by clicking on the lower left large microphone button. And unfortunately, Yvonne, we're not hearing you. So go up to Tools, Audio, and Run the Audio Setup Wizard. We're going to quickly shift to Shelly. Shelly, you have the mic. What? Hello. Nice to hear from you. I'll make this quick. Uh, what specific steps do teachers need to do in order to take, um, to take the power back from the politicians? Well, Whenever something is not ideal in terms of education policy, I think we have to move on two tracks at once. In the short run, we have to minimize the damage in our schools and for our kids. Uh, and in the long run, we have to organize in order to change the laws and policies and moronic mandates. These are not mutually exclusive. I think we need to do both. So for now, if there is top-down pressure to stay on a particular uh, standard and to prepare kids for a given test instead of doing real learning, we have to close our doors and do what we can to minimize and resist that pressure uh, and create the best classrooms we can for now without getting fired. But at the same time, I think we have to speak out. And on my website, which is alfiecone.org, and on a number of other people's websites. I think there's some very specific suggestions for what we can do to organize to speak out together. Um, there are some people who want to write a letter to the editor, and there are other people who think it's time for civil disobedience. And there's a lot of gradations in between. But I think I began by saying 15 minutes ago, or 12 minutes ago, we have to look at the micro and the macro, the pedagogical and the public policy. And you know, there are some people where I agree with them on the micro, and I think they have very sharp ideas about how to help children construct knowledge. But they, I believe, have the wrong idea about the macro and think that these best practices can be imposed on teachers um, with something like national standards. And I think that's a grievous mistake. And the converse is there are people who are terrific in speaking out against the ridiculous macro policies of current school reform. But when you talk with them about what should a great classroom look like, it's still about a bunch of facts. I think we need to draw from a progressive tradition um, for both what we do with individual kids and what we do in the long run. And I'm sorry I can't stay for longer nor hear some of my esteemed uh, colleagues uh, speak on some of these questions too, but I'm delighted you asked me to lead off even though usually introducers say last but not least. In this case, I think you would say first but not most. But I'm, um, I'm delighted to be here with you, and I'm glad you hosted this program. Alfie, I'm clapping for you. There's clapping in the, the chat here, 314 people. Thanks so much for coming by. I don't want to put you on the spot, but certainly would love to have you as a full guest on Future of Education at some point, because what you're saying is so valuable. Thank you so much for coming today. And of course, the daily questions have come now that you have to leave. But, but remember those questions, and we'll find another forum. Yeah. Thank you, Alfie. Very good, and on to the Thank you, Alfie. Thank you. Bye-bye.
So Betty Ray, I didn't give you much of a chance there, did I? Bye. That's quite okay. He was, he was running with it and so are you, so it's, it's all good. Thanks. So why don't, why don't you start the discussion here with Deborah? Um, no, I really want you to do it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to do it. <laughs> okay, thanks. So Debbie, thanks so much for coming. Are you there? Who are you talking oh, to Oh, to you. Me? Deborah? Yes, Deborah. Oh, I thought I was the third. I think you are the third. You're right. So is Diane on the line? Let's see if Diane's come in. Um, I don't see Diane in the chat or online. So if, oh, there she is. Sorry, Diane, I see you. And let me make you a moderator. Hi, I'm here. Terrific. This is Diane. Diane, did you get to hear any of Alfie's uh, impassioned words? Impassioned uh, words. Yes, I did. So, do you want to respond to that at all, or should we ask do you, you the same four questions? At all, or should we ask you the same four questions? Well, you better ask me the same questions because I only caught the last five minutes, and I don't want to uh, only respond to the last five minutes. Oh, you're great. Okay, you're going to have oh, to turn your mic okay, off when I'm speaking because we get an echo, and then turn it back on when you're when it's uh, when you're going to talk. Okay, so our first question is: What vision do you see for teaching and learning that you feel might be particularly important to communicate right now? My concern right now is multiple. First of all, I'm a historian, and I write about the history and politics of education. And I never presume to, to tell teachers how to teach because I am in awe of teachers. They do what I can't do. And it would be very foolish of me to uh, instruct them in what, where they are expert and I am not. What I'm most concerned about today is that there is a national dialogue or monologue about teaching that is very hostile to teachers. It assumes that all the problems in American education are the fault of bad teachers. And uh, the measures of teaching these days are solely standardized tests. And uh, I don't think that's a very good way of identifying good and bad teachers for reasons we can go into. So what I have been most engaged with, uh, particularly over the last several months, is trying to uh, give heart to teachers against what I see as this uh, incredible uh, range of attacks first of all in the media, waiting for Superman, which I think is very hostile to public education, and also uh, with the NBC show last week, which had many of the same voices repeated again and again. And there is uh, just so much money and power uh, at this point taking away respect from teachers that I think uh, all of us who can should speak out and, and uh, to support the work, the important work that they're doing. So part of what we're doing this afternoon is prescriptive, and part of it is sort of process-oriented. From the process side, can you think of some ways that we could help to elevate the dialogue that would be particularly effective right now? Well, you know, I'm, in, I'm encouraged that this conversation is supported by the George Lucas Foundation, because in my travels, what I've noticed is uh, something that, that I call in my book, The Billionaire Boys Club. Uh, that there are just a number of very huge foundations, the Gates Foundation, the Eli Broad Foundation, the Dell Foundation, the Robertson Foundation, and, and then all of the hedge fund managers all trying to tell teachers what to do and trying to reorganize the work in schools and 
uh, using test scores to measure everything. And what needs to happen is that there has to be a counterforce. And I've been searching, trying to find more powerful voices that might be able to uh, counter this, this narrative, which has now completely captivated the media. I mean, we have Newsweek magazine with a cover called The Key to Saving Education is Firing Teachers. We have Arnie Duncan on the side of, uh, you know, we, we have to fire teachers and close schools. There, there just has to be a counter narrative. And, and we, I, I would love to see the George Lucas Foundation and others who don't agree with this, this particular uh, account of, of the problems of our schools get involved and in, in support teachers and support the work they're doing. So is there a degree to which historically we might be in a good position because the web is giving voice to groups that typically have um, not had institutional power? So is, is it possible that we're now at kind of a magic moment where because of the internet teachers are going to be able to coalesce in these ways and, and to have some voice? Well, the internet has certainly changed things. I, funny, I was last night I was watching a, a movie on TCM. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and Mr. Smith, you know, is uh, Jimmy Stewart is on the floor of the Senate. And he's talking and talking and talking, and when he tries to get his message out about corruption in his state, he finds that the bad guys in his state own all the newspapers, and the people can't hear his message. And I was watching this movie from the 1930s and thinking, if the internet had existed at that time he would have no trouble getting his message out. Uh, the people would hear it. So what's happening now is that teachers are responding. Teachers are communicating with one another. They're not accepting this narrative. But the problem is uh, we have Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, NBC, probably some of the other networks as well, uh, certainly the, the you know Fox News and all the others dumping on teachers. And the question is, will the voices of teachers be able to be raised when the media is completely in the tank uh, with the uh, with the billionaire voice club and and with the Obama administration, quite frankly. Uh, so you know, I I'm always hopeful. I, I think what makes me very hopeful is the fact that the Gallup poll that came out a few weeks ago, the Phi Delta Kappa Gallup poll, showed that people were not buying this. That uh, over 70 percent of people like their neighborhood public school, think it does a good job. Uh, they're troubled about American education. But they don't want their school closed. They want it help. They want it fixed. They want it improved. And, and overhearing from Washington is closing schools and firing teachers and firing principals. So yeah, we need to uh, keep communicating. And I think what's going to ultimately happen, and it's kind of a scary scenario, is that these guys will impose this agenda of closing and firing and privatizing and punishing. But it's not going to make anything better. They're going to fail. Their ideas are all bad ideas. Um, but there will be a lot of collateral damage, and that's the scary part. So when we announced the lineup for today's show, we, we got a fair amount of criticism that we hadn't included um, current in the classroom teachers. And th you know, the dilemma was, would they actually draw the audience, and how would you know who to involve? So how do you, how, how, can you think of ways that we could create an environment that would draw in regular educators to the dialogue productively, and does that, and again, is there a dilemma here, a little bit, or a little bit of a tension between sort of the national discussion and local discussions, and how would we uh, find ways to draw educators into the conversation? I would suggest you start with some of the nationally known teacher leaders, uh, some of whom are prominent bloggers, uh, like Anthony Cody and Nancy Flanagan, Ken Bernstein, 
Uh, there are a whole group of teachers who have developed huge followings, national followings. They're national board certified teachers. And I think they give the lie to the uh, media portrayal that it's only the bad teachers and the malcontents who don't like uh, the current uh, narrative about education reform. But I would start with them and, and radiate outwards. There's just an enormous network of teachers now who are online communicating with one another and, and uh, giving each other hope and what is really a, a terrible time and a very discouraging time. So we've got eight people who, nine, who are really lined up to ask questions. So we're going to move quickly to the Q&A here. We have six minutes for Q&A with Diane. If you haven't tested your microphone, please go up to Tools uh, Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. I'm going to give Ellen the mic. Ellen, click on the larger microphone button at the lower left to turn your mic on. Uh, she's doing her setup. There you How's go. that? Can you hear me OK? Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. I'm a teacher educator in a traditional higher ed program and just wondered if Diane could speak to what we in traditional teacher ed programs can be doing uh, to counter the rhetoric that says that uh, Teach for America, uh, et cetera, should be the model for uh, preparing people for the classroom. Well, you know, the question is, in, in a country like ours, is how do you get your voice heard? And you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure because it's taken me 40 years to get my voice heard. So I, I don't think you should, you should wait that long. But as far as Teach for America goes, uh, the problem with it is that they don't stay. Uh, and what what the American public needs to hear is that schools need stability. Uh, they need to develop a culture of people who are committed to the children, to the community, and to each other. And they want to build a uh, build on something that's not going to be, uh, I'm here for two years to fix your problems and save you, and then I'm out of here to find my real job. So yeah, you know, Teach for America has some very good people that they bring into the classroom, but they don't, they don't expect to stay around, and I think that's a very bad thing. I'm going to be in Houston next week uh, on October 14th, where I've been invited to speak to Teach for America and KIPP in something called the Rice Educational Entrepreneurs Program, where they're training young people to make money in education. Uh, I wish that I could hear the laughter or the groans at the other end of this conversation. Um, but, you know, I think Teach for America needs to tone down its rhetoric, stop making ridiculous claims about how they're going to close the achievement gap by coming and going in two years. But that's the message that you as a teacher educator need to get across is that we're trying to build a profession and not uh, just a, a revolving door activity. Thanks, Diane. Frank, you have the mic. Uh, to click on the larger microphone button at the lower left to ask your question. Thanks. Uh, my question, Diane, is uh, a lot of this is still stemming from uh, the Nation at Risk report, which 27 years out of date. Um, we're looking at some data that's old and to some degree faulty. How, how long of a time period should we expect to be able to turn this movement back around and put teachers back in control of their profession? I don't really attribute the current movement to a nation at risk because a nation at risk, uh, if you reread it, said that what we need is we need to have a better teaching core that has paid more, uh, that has you know more in-depth preparation for teaching. It did, did not speak disrespectfully of teachers, and it called on the schools to provide all students with uh, a broad education that included science and the arts and history and, and literature and the whole range. And what we see today is nothing of the call for a broad and rich liberal arts curriculum for all children. We don't hear any talk about teachers need to be paid better. 
Um, and in fact, the nation at risk report only had one sentence about testing. So it was not a big testing report. It said nothing about choice. The, the whole dialogue today or monologue today about educational reform is devoted to only two principles, and that's choice uh, and accountability. And by accountability, what they mean is who should we punish? And they always somehow start with teachers. Camille, I've given you the mic. Click on that larger microphone button to turn your microphone on. And we're not hearing from Camille, so I'm going to give the mic to Karen. Karen, go ahead and ask your question. So I'm not hearing from either Camille or Karen. Um, Diane, if you were writing an education manifesto or declaration, what would you want to make sure was at the very top? I guess at the very top, I would put the importance of respect for teachers. Uh, if people don't have respect and esteem for the people doing the work in the classroom, uh, then none of the reforms that are being talked about by anybody will make any difference. Uh, I would want to have teachers who have been gone through a rigorous program. Uh, someone mentioned in one of the comments that Teach for America teachers get six months of training. No, they don't. They get five weeks of training. Uh, and that's not nearly enough. So I think the teachers need to really know their subject matter. Uh, they need to know the, the pedagogy. Uh, and they need to have uh, lots of classroom experience uh, as, te as teachers in training before they go into the program. I think the other thing that I would put into a manifesto is that we should have highly ex experienced educators who are principals, preferably master teachers. Uh, the principal is the head teacher. And there is now a movement that's been afoot now for several years to put into the principal's job people who come from other sectors who are not educators. Uh, I read the other day a press release that the George W. Bush Institute is opening a new principal training program where they will hope to train 50,000 principals over the next decade, replacing half the principals in America, uh, largely with people recruited from non-educational fields. I think that's a huge mistake. Okay, okay. Diane, thank you so much. I know this is such limited time. I'm clapping here. I know you can see the, the participants, so I'm going to encourage them to thank you as well for coming on. Uh, I think you have a babysitting commitment, so we're going to let you go. But thanks again so much. Thank, thank you. I'm going to go take care of my four-year-old grandson. Okay. So Debbie, are you ready? I'm always ready. So you've kind of, you've kind of yes. you've heard you've you heard Alfie and, and, and Diane now. So um, rather than start with the four questions, do you have any kind of a response or sense of what really is important at this moment? Um, so many responses that um, can you? Hear, I just want to make sure you can Absolutely. hear me. Absolutely. Okay, it's you know late there. It's hard to tell. Uh, I just. Um, I think that's a reminder in this kind of discussion that uh, there are many possible futures. There's as many as we can imagine. And uh, the question is uh, which one we, which direction we want to go in. And I think um, Alfie was very right about that, that until we start discussing why we incarcerate children for, oh, um, 12 and more years, and we're now claiming they all have to go to college and finish college. So somehow or other, they have to make schools the center of their lives for nearly 20 years. And uh, so the question really is, uh, 
what's, what is it that's so important um, that we require them to be there day after day after day? And um, I, I, it's hard for me to believe that if we just had more people with PhDs, there would be more jobs that required PhDs. But there is one thing that I think we all require as citizens of this country and even non-citizens or citizens to be um, is worrying about the future of democracy as an idea and as practice. And um, I've had a lot of chances. You know, I've been very lucky. I've had the chance to bring, uh, to, bring to life um, over and over again the dreams I've had about what it should be like for four-year-olds and 18-year-olds. And people always told us, you can't do that, you can't do that, and yet we did. Uh, but I'm not sure that I would argue that everybody should take the path that I did. And some of the schools I love dearly went in a very different direction. So uh, the starting point, though, is a discussion about um, whether having a democratic future is important. And if it is, um, thinking where do we expect kids to learn the habits of mind and heart that democracy rests on. And um, let me put my cards on the table. Uh, I think we've made a huge leap backward and if this were, in fact, the purpose of our education, the central purpose. There can be many purposes, but the central purpose is not uh, you know, whether my child gets this job versus your child but whether we all create the kind of society that we aspire to, you know, together. So, I mean, that's the starting point. I could go on, you know, what it requires. And, um, and I do think there are some commonalities between the kinds of schools that I think help us reach democracy. But it depends how people uh, define that word. I think without mutual respect, between not just for teachers, but for teachers, the parents of the children who come to our schools, and the children themselves, uh, is essential if we're going to develop the habits of treating all of our citizens with respect. I mean, that, that underlying assumption that, which is, of course, a mirage in a way, it's not exactly true, but it's the assumption uh, that we could be wrong and they could be right that is very hard to hold on to and which schools need to be practicing over and over again. Teachers need to listen to kids' stupid answers with the possibility that the kid has something important to say. And uh, we all need to be listening to each other that way with the possibility that um, there's something we can learn from each other. Whether it's in history or math or whatever the subject matter is, uh, it's the stance we take towards each other, which I think is so critical to our future. Let me stop there. So uh, we had Ben Daly on the show last week from High Tech High, and Ben made a point I thought was really interesting, and I think I've heard it, an echo of it in what you've just said, which is they've taken High Tech High in a particular direction pedagogically, but he respects other schools that have gone in different directions. But to him, it was really important that there be kind of a core set of principles. So how do you help schools develop those core principles? Well, I think you start by bringing the constituents of that school together. Um, and um, 
talking with each other about what do they what do they mean by respect? What would it look like if I, as the principal of Central Park East, respected the parents of my school? What does it look like when I disrespect them? You know, we don't all um, we don't all even notice when we're disrespecting each other. And the same conversation with kids. Um, you know, I can remember uh, parents coming to me after, especially uh, you know when they didn't know me well. Uh, coming to me many months later to say something that I told their child that really wounded their child and them. And I, I felt so badly because it wasn't at all what I had intended. So unless, but I wasn't hearing. I wasn't watching. I wasn't observing. This parent was too afraid of me still to call me and um, tell me that her child had been wounded by my actions. It's it's we don't we don't develop any time in the school day or the school year of a serious sort for that kind of conversation between teachers who know the same child between parents uh, and teachers. You know we have 15 minute family conferences once a year. Uh, I stopped going to my especially when my kids reached high school because they were so um, there were three minute conferences and all they could tell me really was whether he'd completed his homework and what his test scores were. <clears throat> they could have written me that. We, we don't trust each other, and at the heart of it is that we have built institutions that haven't spent the time figuring out what it would mean um, to trust each other's intentions, and therefore uh, trust each other to hear each other. Schools are built and increasingly built on the assumptions of distrust. and um, Tests are an example of that distrust, um, but it shows itself in so many ways. Um, and you know, all the when I first started teaching in Chicago, the thing that hit me over the head was the daily, small daily humiliations that were part of the teacher's role. How they were talked to by uh, other people what say they had on what they could do, um, how they had to, you know, the way people from downtown talked to them. It, it's, uh, it was the first time in my life and that I thought someone was treating me as though I were a bad child, or a potentially bad child, uh, before they had any evidence for doing so. It was the presumption. And that's a long history of that with teachers above all elementary school teachers. They have never been really respected uh, by people of power and influence. Uh, sometimes they are, mostly they are, by children. That's a strange world. And if we want the school to be a place where we practice over and over again, over-practice the habits of democratic, intellectual, and social life, that would be a huge revolution in our schooling, and we're doing—we're having a counter-revolution against all aspects of school that did respect teachers and kids and families. I mean, we're moving further and further away from a school that practices democracy. I don't want to assume that everybody in the in the audience of 368 people here is the choir, but it does feel like this is a group that's going to be very receptive to those ideas and, and resonate. I'm seeing a lot of very positive chat. So how do we elevate this dialogue 
on a broader scale? Are there specific things to do, or is this really, again, uh, something you do locally? Let me say, if the, the teachers, uh, I think there's a lot more we can do, uh, both in writing and speaking about uh, our role in schools. I sent a newsletter home uh, for 40 years to the parents of my kindergarten children, and when I was a principal to the parents of the school, I encouraged every teacher to we uh, had all kinds of ways to really getting to know the parents well, and uh, in a way that are, made them more powerful. And we did a lot to create a stronger voice for our colleagues and the families and the children. And that's one thing we could all be doing. We could be writing letters to the editor. We could stop seeing ourselves as the kind of um, uh, victims of a process and of the future. Uh, we can have a voice in changing it if we had more the courage to do it. Now, some have good reasons to fear they'll be fired if they do. Uh, I, I mean, really good reasons. We have, I think, teachers are more often fired for being troublemakers than they are for being in poor classroom teachers. And I have a lot of close friends and relatives who've experienced that. So I, I don't say it lightly, but um, I think we try to be as troublemakers as we can on this score um, until we're threatened, and then we have to decide. <laughs> Shall we take another step? Shall we step back? But there are places we could write and talk about. And then uh, there's places we can organize. We can join our unions and help uh, support their efforts to uphold the dignity uh, of the teaching profession. So um, that's in terms of teachers. And parents need to join us. And I, I don't, you see, I don't think that we're facing really a hostile public. I do think, though, that we have our narrative and our story uh, doesn't get told a lot, and that very articulate and powerful voices on the side want to get rid of public education. I don't think it's. Some of them actually may believe that test scores and the pressure on test scores will improve children's education, but uh, that we have considerable proof now is not true. We've had study after study which <laughs> says that none of this focusing on just tests produce better test scores, and that test scores differ from one test to another. So one year they can tell you your child is great, and the next year all on New York City, they tell you your child is um, barely reading. Uh, I think we can destroy that part, but something else may be put in its place uh, if the aim is to eliminate public education and to um, put all our public institutions. I just heard recently a talk about privatizing our public libraries. I mean, I think there is a real ideology among some people um, that public can't be good, that if something's available to anyone, it can't be a good thing, that um, collective schools uh, where the school can kick you out and can easily uh, eliminate you have to be better, that private must be better than public. And um, I, I think they really, truly believe that. And then thirdly, there are some people who are just playing out to make money off of public funds for education. So we have time for one um, question, if you're open to having a question asked. Yes. OK, so I'm going to give Brandy the microphone. Brandy, go ahead and click on the larger microphone button to turn your mic on. 
Deborah, I think you've inspired many of us. Um, you mentioned a couple words that struck me, democracy and revolution. My question to you is how do you see the Tea Party movement, if you do, affecting educational reform? Well, it's funny you ask that. I keep thinking that in an odd way they should be against these reforms. But uh, I just heard some really conservative Republican on television, I think last night, uh, who says only one good thing to say about Obama, and that's his education plan. And everything else he said was it should have led him <laughs> to be on my side in education, whereas I think the main thing Obama has done wrong is the education platform. So uh, I, I don't know how to make put those together, because I, I think you've had a very important question that people who have been arguing for a voice in their lives are are seem to be falling in line with the idea that these decisions should be made by the federal government. Now, maybe some of them um, think, well, we'll have more private schools, and uh, as we have more uh, privatized charters, um, less and less of the public um, the mandates will apply to us. I don't know. I have never had a discussion with them, but I think that's, and there isn't probably a them there. So I, I think we should look for those openings, though, uh, to remind people. You see, the other part is, uh, I, I, I believe there's got to be a way for children to be raised in an environment of trust. And I think that's true for democracy, too. And I, the concern I have about the Tea Party movement is that it encourages distrust uh, and encourages not listening to the other side. And that's, I think, dangerous for a good education. Deborah, thank you so much By for way, coming on today. I, I, Did you want to finish up with something? No, I'm sorry, I can't. Did you I want mean, to? No, I, I think that's partly uh, that I'm sorry that I couldn't talk to more people. So look at my website, too, and keep part of this conversation. I can say one other thing that Diane said that I think is really important, and that is um, that there are lots of teachers out there who are beginning to be known. I mean, it's an accident that I got uh, to be well-known by many people. Uh, it's the accident of the MacArthur giving me an award. But there were tons of teachers as articulate and competent as I have been. and. Uh, who don't get in the spotlight. So I think people like you can help bring those people to the attention of a larger world. And uh, starting with the bloggers. Terrific. We lost you there at the end. But thank you so much. I'm clapping. I know you can see the screen. And um, really, really appreciate your voice and your taking the time today to come on. And of course, you're welcome to stay. But we are going to stay on a pretty strict schedule yeah. here and bring Chris up. So thanks, Deborah, and welcome, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, let me just go ahead and say that I, I uh, can't believe that um, we would ever stop Deb Meyer from talking so anybody could ever hear anything I would say. Um, that just seems wrong to me. Um, so I don't know. So hello, uh, Steve. I don't know if you want to start with a question or if you just want me to start chatting. Well, you've been well, here the whole time, so you've, you've, you've heard everything, heard everything so, so go ahead. So, okay, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think at this point in, in where we've uh, gone to, I think we, got, we do have to, you know, I'm going to try and build on what some other people have said. 
I think we do have to understand that we are up against literally billions upon billions of dollars. And to echo what Deb and what Alfie and what uh, Diane said, we have to mobilize. Um, but I think that this is not only going to be a grassroots um, revolution. I don't think we're going to do this one classroom at a time and one school at a time. Um, it's just not going to be, it's, it's, we're up against too big a force on that level. Um, we have to get on message, and we have to get on message, and we have to get big. And, and to answer your question, I mean, there are those organizations out there. We have, I mean, you know, whether it's the Coalition of Essential Schools or if it is the Forum for Education or Democ and Democracy, if it is um, Broader Boulder Initiative, we need to get behind one of those groups. We need to get, I mean, Bro Broader Boulder should be the answer to a lot of this stuff, what they are writing about, what they are doing, what they are saying, educators and policymakers, and just brilliant, brilliant people. Um, and we should be writing them checks. Um, you know, and I don't, I mean, and we should just be getting them on message, getting them out there. And then we need to also learn the lesson of Twitter, which is, and I can't believe I'm saying this, which is say it succinctly. We need to, I mean, educators, do an amazing job of sort of thoughtfully, quietly, passionately describing detailed solutions to the problems. And that's not going to get it done. You know, not when John Legend is out there going, the secret to teachers, you know, the secret to education is good teachers. And it's like, well, thank you. You know, um, that doesn't mean anything to me. They're beating us, they're beating us to the punch on every sound bite and every platitude. And worse, um, they're Stealing our language, you know, um, right, exactly. Obama's, I only like good charters. That's exactly right. So we have to be aware of that. I think we also, within our own selves, have to clean up our own house, you know. And this is Milton Chen asked earlier when I, you know, was kind of jokingly saying beforehand, like, how am I going to follow any of these brilliant people with anything to say? And uh, Milton reminded me, you know, of an important thing. I am the son of a union lawyer, and I am the son of uh, a teacher who was a shop steward of her union. Um, and so Milton asked me to talk about what the role of the union is. And I think um, the union has a role. And, and you know, and I, I, I know there are great charter schools that are non-union, and that's awesome. And, and you know, uh, Dave Childs is a friend of mine. I think he's doing a wonderful job out at ASL Charter. But as long as we've got the unions, let's talk about what they are. And let's remember that, as Deb said so eloquently, public schools are a hallmark of our democratic ideals. And what I always argue is those democratic ideals are not in concert with our capitalist ideals, but they are in tension with them. And that's in our society. And we have to remember that, that when our public schools come from our democratic ideals, then our job is to co-create citizens not, and to cultivate the citizenship of our students, not just create workers. Um, do unions have to change? Yes. But one of the most painful things about Education Nation that I saw was that, um, you know, Randy Weingarten, whether you think she should be our spokesperson or, or not, um, she was talking about all of the ways the unions were changing, all of the ways um, the unions were trying to modernize. 
and you just look at Michelle's Michelle Reed's face, and it was I give you nothing. And it was well, then why just sue me? And it was like because you have to understand, Ms. Reed, working with you, collaborating with you, changing doesn't mean we give over our right to a say in our lives. Doesn't mean we let you do what you want. And what no one was willing to say is that there is no collaborating with Michelle Reed or Joel Klein. They want the unions gone. So yes, we absolutely must, mod must change and we must obviously get rid of some of the work rules that we know why they that are no longer helping kids or helping teachers. But we also have to remember that it is I work that it is so easy for teachers to get abused, especially in our cities, but anywhere. You know, I worry deeply about this Messiah myth, the Superman myth, the do whatever it takes teacher, because I think that that creates an incredible potential for abuse of teachers. I think teachers unions exist to make sure that teaching can be a career and not just a stopover on the way to law school. I think we have to ask ourselves questions, which is, do teachers have a right to a say in their work environment, in their pay, in the conditions by which they teach? And if we believe that answer is yes, the next question has to be, do they have a better chance to have that right if they do it alone or they do it collectively? And if the answer is they do it collectively, then of course we have teachers unions. Do they always act perfectly? No, they don't. That's fine. Neither do administrators. Neither do students. Neither do parents. And the reason isn't because they're a union or because they're principals or because they're kids or because they're parents. It's because they're people. But the fact of the matter is teachers do deserve a say in their own lives and they have a say in their own schools. And so we have to understand that that's the role of the union. Now, unions have got to get on board. You know, I mean, Phil Oaks saying about the civil rights movement 40 years ago that when the civil rights, when the unions refused to modernize and did not get behind the civil rights movement, they damaged their own credibility. And there is no question in my mind that the unions time and again have damaged their own credibility by oftentimes defending the, you know, by spending too much time, and even Randy Weingarten admitted this, defending the teachers they shouldn't have been defending. But that doesn't change that collective bargaining is important and that doesn't change that teachers have a right to a say in their, work, in their work environment. So that's the role of unions and that is fundamentally the role of democracy. And we have to also remember that when this, these attacks are coming in, this, this school versus that school, measure the tests, measure everything, we have to remember that what we are creating is a system of I've got mine. We need to, I need to get my child a better education than yours so he can outperform you. We need to get our, our nation a better education than another one so we can indulge in our worst ideas of xenophobia. We have created a system where there will be winners and losers, and that is anti-democratic. Theodore Parker says it best. He says, democracy is not I am as good as you, but you are as good as I. And we need to get that message out there. We need to get that message, and we need to understand that every single one of us has a right to get those, that has a responsibility to get that message out there. And we have to understand that as, as easy as it is sometimes to fall back on, I shouldn't have to do this, that that is no longer acceptable. That is no longer allowed. And we also have to understand that we do have to clean our own house. 
We get we we invited the the accountability movement into schools when we stopped holding ourselves responsible for what happened, not just in our own classrooms, but in the classrooms next door to us. Every excuse me, every parent should be able to walk into their child's school, walk into their child's classroom, and ask, what is the defining pedagogy of this school? What is the defining pedagogy of this class? And expect an intelligent answer. We have to hold ourselves accountable for that. And we've got to do a better job of defining what we do and then taking that message out there, not just grassroots, but making sure that um, we have are getting behind people who are getting this message out that, that we're not arguing over minutiae, that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot, but that we get behind the people who are taking this message out there and really develop a counter message to what is a very tightly scripted anti-democratic um, movement against schools. That's what I got. Well, you talked yourself right well, you into the Q&A. Right Chris, giving an echo. And we'll have you bring it back on. Okay, so if you'd like to ask Chris a question and Rocket Rob, your hand is raised. If it is a question for Chris, leave your hand up. If it's not, go ahead and put it down. Uh, but Chris, while we're waiting for questions to come in, the top of your education declaration or manifesto is what statement? The top of my education manifesto is that we must understand the difference between the statements, I teach English and I teach kids English. Children must, should never be the implied object of their own education. Children must always be at the forefront of everything that we do. When we teach children the subjects we teach, we allow them to become the people they need to become, not the people we want them to become. And by the way, just um, Zach and, and Diana, who are here, will kill me if I don't do this. We talk about all of these ideas um, at our conference that we run, uh, Educon. Uh, the website is educon23.org. It is January 28th, 29th, and 30th uh, at Science Leadership Academy. It is co-run by uh, educators at SLA, parents at SLA, students at SLA, and it's a wonderful chance to come together and really talk about these ideas together um, um, with other educators, with students, with parents. It's wonderful. So if there's any questions, let's answer them. Okay, so Rocket Rob, I've given you the mic. Go ahead and click on the larger microphone button to turn your mic on and ask your question. And I think we've missed Rocket Rob. So I'm sorry I'm not following the chat, so I can't pull up a question right away. Do we have another hand raised? Will, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, if you don't mind, can you hear me, Steve? Loud and clear. Hey, Chris. So what is that compelling uh, counter message in 140 characters or less? So one is we teach students not subjects, but the second message that I think is important is we will never bully teachers into caring about kids. Every value we want for our children, we must, uh, we must want for our teachers as well. Anti-teacher movements will never build schools that matter. A great note to end on, Chris. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't know if you can stay or not, but sure, appreciate your having been here up to this point. I am clapping as well. Will is clapping. Um, Chris Lehman, Science Leadership Academy, and EduCon. And give those dates again, Chris. Uh, those dates are January 28th 
29th and 30th. Uh, the website is educon23.org. And we are also still accepting proposals to facilitate conversations all the way up until October 20th. So come, facilitate a session. Um, we'd love to have you be there. Thanks so Thanks much, so Chris. We're, we are we have stayed on time. I'm really happy about that. And Paula Frank and the school principal and Mary. Sorry, we're not getting all the questions, but hopefully you can put stuff in the chat and be in conversation with each other. Gary Steger, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to be with some of my old friends and heroes and people I really admire for this very important discussion. Um, you know, I'd I like to build upon some of the things that have been said and, and put a little personal perspective on it as well and sort of describe what I think is going on and some alternatives um, so that things need not be as they seem and so that we can exit this, this time of darkness by creating some compelling models of what's possible because otherwise um, the, the forces of evil will fill that void. Um, you know, we have billionaire bullies who are not only transferring public treasure to private hands by turning public schools into private schools or charters, um, but as was mentioned earlier, they're also co-opting our language. Somehow reform and innovation have come to mean one thing, higher, tougher standards, endless test prep, um, debasing and demeaning teachers, union busting, um, and I, and I, what, what concerns me about this is I'm no apologist for the current system. I recognize that in way too many cases, schools are, and classrooms in particular are mind-numbing, soul-killing places that can always be better, that can always engage kids more. Um, I think every teacher should wake up each morning and think to themselves, how do I make this the best seven hours or best 42 minutes or best period and a half of a kid's life or a kid's day? And what concerns me is that when, when Debbie talked about having dreams and being able to act upon them and create schools like the Central Park East schools and Mission Hill, um, her determination and chutzpah and drive and energy were sufficient to create models of, of what's possible that may differ from, from the status quo. And what concerns me today in the, in the days of Education Nation and Oprah and John Legend, um, and I went and saw Waiting for Superman last night, is that the only notion of reform are these obedient schools for other people's children. Um, schools that Bill Gates and Jeffrey Canada and Michelle Reeve would never, ever, ever, ever dream of sending their own children to or any child that they cared about um, as more than an ideological pawn. And many of us, have ideas for how we could create schools that are more productive contexts for learning. I spent three years working inside a prison for teenagers in Maine where Amnesty International documented children were being tortured. And with Seymour Papert, we created an environment in which the kids not only succeeded, they engaged in deeply creative and intellectual enterprises. Um, they could wax poetically about poetry and material science and everything in between. And some of the kids actually went from having not been in school in several years directly to university um, because we created an environment where they were able to acquaint or reacquaint themselves with their power of learn as learners and the joy um, and utility and, and power of learning. But that was only possible because 
the governor and the state legislature, the Commissioner of Education in Maine at the time, freed us of all curriculum and assessment requirements. So we were able to create an environment where kids could work on personally meaningful projects for five hours at a time every day, where, where they could follow their own interests and passions and needs and expertise, and where those, those desires and impulses and curiosities could be built upon by educators who cared about them rather than some archaic or arcane or arbitrary list of stuff or bunch of facts, as Alfie called it. And, and yet, there are lots of models that, that have been successful for children. The, the big picture schools that Dennis Lidke runs, the SLA that Chris runs, the, many of the schools in the coalition of essential schools are alternative visions of what's possible in a democratic society when, when we care about children and we, we deem to, to do better by them. Um, and yet, in the public media, which, which we um, dis, disregard at our own peril, you would think that polyester uniforms and sitting in rows and chanting multiplication tables are the only way to be educated. Um, and the school day needs to be longer and the school year needs to be longer, which is clearly on the wrong side of history, but that's an entirely different discussion. Um, but it's all rooted in this sort of notion of insanity that we, if we just do the same thing over and over again but louder, will achieve a different result. And what, as I mentioned, concerns me is that in this discussion of the four pillars or of innovation or transformation or school reform, the only reform that's tolerable is KIPP. And as educators, first of all, we have to be willing to engage in a discussion in which we're willing to state whether we think something is an effective educational or pedagogical practice or it isn't. There's a, we've fallen into a trap of moral relativism where we think everyone can do anything that, that they wish. Um, but I don't want my children in a KIPP school. And when I was at Educon a few years ago and said we should never scream at children, one of the directors of KIPP interrupted me and said, wait, I disagree. And I thought, you disagree? You disagree with what? So well, we like to arm all of our teachers with all the tools that they have in an arsenal. They use all these sort of militaristic metaphors. And he said, so we tell a teacher that if a child doesn't understand you in English, try Spanish. If they don't understand you in Spanish, try Yellish. And that was obviously some sort of rehearsed shtick, like all the other shtick that they do to children in most schools. Um, that's abusive, that's oppressive, that's non-democratic, that's um, anti-intellectual. And I don't think we want a school system that's based on Yellish. But if you want your child in a school like that, then I think you should have the right to enroll them in such a school. And it, it amuses me to no end that when the, the billionaire bullies talk about the splendid um, private sector and free market competition, they don't really put their money where their mouth is and they don't really believe it. I want to advocate for radical democracy. Uh, if you like charter schools, if you like competition, fine. Then every public school in America should be a charter school where the curriculum, the hiring, the, the, the schedule, the assessment techniques should be determined by the parents and the teachers in that school, the people who are closest to the children and who have the, the greatest expertise about what's in their best interest. How about we try that on for size? How about we say that parents love their children and we have to behave in, in a way in which we build schools that are based on the notion that when given a genuine choice, 
they'll they'll actually make one that's that's in their best interest. Not just out of desperation because there's a lottery for some school that has a music teacher when no other school in Washington D.C. has one. Um, Let's see. I had a couple other notes. You know, we. I, I wrote an article that's on my website, and I put some resources together at stager.tv/blog. Um, and there's an article there called "Why Should I Work for You," that broke my heart when a young student teacher who's actually facing unemployment, like most new teachers, a fact that's left out of most of the public debates about public education, that there are hundreds of thousands of brand new qualified excited, enthusiastic, creative, loving, passionate, dynamic teachers who can't even get a job as a teacher. But much of what the, these young teachers saw while student teaching, um, they even knew as, as beginning teachers was not in the best interest of children. In some ways was ba were based on pedagogical fantasies and crackpot theories about learning and about what the real world is like. And when I hear people talk about preparing children for the real world, I know that what's about to follow is awful and delusional and bears no resemblance whatsoever to what competent people do in the real world. Um, but when these, these young teachers see what's being done with the endless test prep and shaming and name calling and ranking and sorting that's based on this ancient model of education being a scarce resource where we have to have winners and losers, as Chris said. Um, they just looked at me and said, how do, I, how do I avoid becoming like these teachers who are at best suffering from Stockholm Syndrome and identifying with their captors and doing things that they know are not in the best interest of children? Um, you know, who's going to become a teacher when they're demonized and despised and told to read from a script? And if you're trying to understand where all this comes from, um, my little conspiracy theory is that prior to No Child Left Behind, parents were typically happy with their children's school, or at least their children's teacher. And people who are happy with their local school and local teacher are not likely to, to try some dangerous, risky experiment like privatizing or, or turning their school into a charter. Um, but if you're an advocate for privatizing public education or destroying it altogether, which I think some people ha are advocates for, um, you have to find a way to undermine the public's confidence in their local school and their local teacher. And I think the most effective way of doing that has, has, been, a, has been undertaken over the past few years, and that is through the endless testing of the children, which makes them like school less, which makes school a less relevant, less joyful place, and by constantly reporting to parents that based on these deeply flawed tests, your teacher's child, your child's teacher is failing your child. And if you hear that for one, two, three years running, you'll be willing to take any life raft that you know, some some billionaire ideologue wants to toss your way. Um, you know, unqualified is the new qualified. Every major school system in America is being run by someone with no qualifications. And yet, um, I can't start a new school. Um, I don't think the New York City public schools or the Washington, D.C. schools would allow me to volunteer to try to work some of my magic and to create a more democratic, loving, um, creative, interdisciplinary, constructionist, project-based environment 
even if I know that in a, a prison context we had kids who didn't have to leave the class for discipline reasons once in a three-year period, where kids who had been school failures year after year after year were now successful and wanted to go on for further education, wanted to go back to their community schools and share what they had, known, they had learned. Um, I know that, that we can create miracles in a very short period of time when we create an environment where the children feel loved and respected and where we put their needs and passions and talents and expertise and any expertise of their teacher um, ahead of some arbitrary list of stuff. And yet, um, those alternative realities for children are being stymied by, by a bunch of ideologues and, and two-bit politicians who are in this for a couple years um, and whose careers will flourish if they're unsuccessful. I predicted this about Michelle Ree in Waiting for Superman last night. She said this is her one and only superintendency. She expects to, to go down in flames and then her career on the speaker circuit and working for foundations will skyrocket because even the great Michelle Ree couldn't fix this damn system that hates children. And I don't think that the system hates children. I think the folks who are, who are strangling us right now hate children and they certainly hate teachers. And as some of my previous um, the previous speakers and my colleagues pointed out they hate democracy as well. The last point I want to make, because I'm watching the clock and I want to take some questions, and I'll be happy to stick around at 4 o'clock, and Steve knows I'm always happy to, to do any kind of forum that, that, that you might want, um, is something really practical that we could do to change the world. And I've thought this for a number of months now, and since the George Lucas Foundation is sponsoring this event, I want to say the following. The George Lucas Foundation and Edutopia have um, provided a great public service by documenting excellent project-based learning um, ideas and telling the story of effective schools. Um, but if they really wanted to change the world, they have the ability to do so with one Super Bowl ad that says, cut it out. Standardized testing is destroying America. It's beating the creativity out of children and their teachers. It's making us less competitive, not more. Um, George Lucas could go to Capitol Hill and say, cut it out, and the cameras would follow them. It's not just good enough to have a website or a magazine with pretty pictures and cute ideas of teachers doing isolated good things in isolated classrooms. Um, if you really want to help, we need the big voices. Because right now, we've got nuclear weapons pointed at us by NBC and Oprah and Gates and Broad, and we could use some help, and we need some other billionaires to speak up on our behalf. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. As we move forward today, the, the monologues get longer and the Q&As get shorter, but for good reason, because you've been able to hear the previous guests. So thank you so much, Gary. Let's take one question. If you've got a question for Gary, please feel free to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. Otherwise, Gary is going to stay on at 4 o'clock Pacific. Let's see. It's 4 o'clock Pacific, 7 Eastern. We're going to do an extra hour of uh, open forum. I'm not seeing a question right off the bat, so Gary, I'm clapping for you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for your uh, clarion voice and your passion. And oh, Anne, oh, yeah. so Anne, I'm going to give you the mic and let's do a quick question. Oh, maybe she was needing to clap. Where's your hand? Okay, so Will, I know you're there. I'm just going to say this really quickly to Q&A from Edutopia, and I just wanted to thank Gary for that message and um, appreciate the, the comment. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, Steve and Betty. I hope you guys can hear me okay. We can. 
Um, yeah, I, I really want to thank Edutopia and, and you too, Steve, for doing this. Uh, I, this has been a great uh, hour and 15 minutes just listening to these people. It's a very humbling uh, lineup to be in the midst of. And, and uh, you know, I just want to say, too, as a, as a national board member for Edutopia, that uh, there are some conversations I know that are going on in terms of how we can begin to kind of bring this to a larger audience, and I know that they are always concerned about uh, the best way of doing that. I'm not sure that, uh, um, you know, George Lucas um, is going to buy a Super Bowl ad, but maybe we can get him to do that. I don't know. Um, so I'll just start. And, and Steve, I'm going to try really hard to make sure I leave a little bit of time for questions. But, um, you know, those of you that know me know that it's very difficult for me to enter this conversation without seeing it as a parent and uh, looking at it through the eyes of, of someone who has two little kids, 11 and 13, um, there may be some of their teachers in this room right now. I know I, I uh, messaged them and told them uh, that, uh, you know, encouraged them to come. But, you know, it, it is a, a really interesting moment because uh, through the parents' eyes, at least, it's, it's just totally obvious that uh, uh, very little of what they're doing in their classrooms right now um, really, really makes sense in a world that is being uh, connected in the way that, that many of us in this room are experiencing it. And so, you know, I got to tell you, I, I, and I wrote about this on my blog a little bit too, but I still think that the conversation is a little bit uh, going down the wrong path. I think it's really difficult right now to have a coherent conversation about what schools should look like um, if we're not talking about learning first. And very little, to be honest with you, of the conversation tonight has been about learning. It's been about schools. And, and so I'd like to just take a little bit of a different path. And that's not to say that the, the ideas that people are expressing here aren't incredibly valuable and incredibly, incredibly passionate they are. But just in the lens that I have, I mean, I, I don't know how we begin to really think about schools differently if we don't start thinking about learning differently. And I don't know how we can talk about learning without talking about technology. Um, I think that the, the things that, that technology affords us right now from a learning standpoint um, are, are pretty big. The shifts that are occurring right now are pretty major. And that's not to say that learning doesn't take place without technology, that learning in physical space isn't really important. But I just don't know how we look in the future and really have a discussion of, of reforming or transforming schools Without, without figuring out how technology, and especially these connective technologies that we have, play a role in that. And I don't know how we have that conversation if we aren't doing that type of stuff to some extent as well, if we aren't participating in those spaces um, as well. And, and so I, I think it's a really interesting and a really difficult moment right now because um, we do see uh, a, a need to, to change the conversation about schools, um, and, and yet, I think that, you know, the first question that you asked Alfie and, and uh, you know, the first couple of speakers was, you know, what, what's kind of your vision for teaching and learning? I mean, I, I think that there are going to be lots of different spaces for kids to learn. I'm not sure that the school as we know it is going to be the only place where um, students are going to be having learning interactions that are very meaningful in their lives. And, um, that, uh, you know, we need to be open to thinking about that whole transaction in a different way. So, um, you know, if, if we, we can talk about schools and we can talk about what needs to change, but I, and it's kind of the, the question that I asked very respectively to Chris, 
you know, in terms of, you know, what is that coherent message? What is that real shifted vision that we have? I think it's just very difficult to, to define it right now because we are moving into a period, I think, of, of, of really different learning opportunities for people and for kids. And, and what roles that schools and teachers play in my children's lives when they have these opportunities facing them, I think those roles have to change a great deal. And, and we're not exactly sure, I don't think, yet what that all means. Um, look, I know that um, uh, there are lots of kids who aren't connected and there are lots of kids who don't have access to the, the, the technology. And I think that that is obviously a huge, huge piece of it. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I, I can't imagine that, I mean, I, I find it incredible that we're not doing more to get kids connected. Um, in schools and to find ways to get technology into their hands. Um, but at the end of the day, it's got to be about how do we help kids define their own interests, their own passions, and how do we help them become self-directed in a world where they have access to so many people and so much information and so much knowledge out there. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge conversation, and, and uh, I just don't feel like we've gotten too far down the road on, on what that, that looks like. Um, so, you know, again, from a parenting standpoint, you know, I come home and, and Tucker's on the couch, my son's on the couch the other day, he's got my computer open and he's got the Wii going, and I just said to him, you know, what, what are you doing, Tuck? And he said, well, I'm learning all the cheats for Mario Brothers on the Wii from watching all these, going all these blogs and YouTube videos. And, you know, I, I think it just kind of captures the, the type of, of uh, passion-based or, or interest-based learning that, that we all can do right now. And yet there's not too many people um, in the systems who are helping kids really understand that on a deep level. And I really think that that's where the biggest part of the shift is. Um, and, you know, you asked about you know, how do we make this, how do we bring this discussion once we kind of figure out or, or once we do get a coherent message, you know, how do we take it to the next level? I, it's, it's a really difficult um, moment right now because there is a lot of money and a lot of bandwidth that is being invested, as Gary and Chris and others have said, um, to, to really narrowing and dumbing down the message about education. And, and, you know, it, it all boils down to higher student achievement, which is, is defined as higher test scores so that we can compete better against all those other kids in all those other countries who are being measured the same way. And that's an easy message. It's just an easy message to put out there. People can wrap their brains around that, and, and they can, they can, they can um, have conversations around it. It, it makes... You know, that, that competition piece of it makes for winners and losers, as Gary and others have said. And, you know, I think it, it's, it's just a much, much more complex uh, um, conversation and interaction that we have to have. And, I, you know, I often wonder if, if we're literally ready to have it because um, um, of, of the way that the whole kind of education process has been dumbed down. So I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit here. But... Look, to me, you know, it is about learning, and it's about teachers being learners. I, I look at my kids' teachers, and, and I think that they are they're all of them, and I've met them all. They are great human beings. They absolutely want what's best for my kids. But they're in systems that make it very difficult for them to be learners. And, you know, in the work that we've been doing with TLT and, and, and um, you know, in professional development, trying to get teachers to look at themselves as learners first, 
has been without question the number one biggest hurdle that we've had. Uh, it's very difficult for teachers to um, you know, see themselves as learners first and teachers second. And I just, I, again, as a parent, what I want more than anything else is for learning to be the emphasis of the classroom right now, for teachers to be sharing and modeling the ways that they solve their own problems, the, the, the ways that they you know, connect and communicate with, with other people, um, the way that they collaborate and create through technology. And again, I'm not saying that every interaction has to be through technology, but I am saying that uh, I just don't understand how we can move forward in any coherent way without technology being a very, very big part of, of the conversation. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult moment. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty intense and, I've got to tell you, a pretty humbling moment um, to, to be kind of in the mix um, and having these conversations. Um, but uh, uh, we absolutely need to to take the conversation further and get it out there to other people to to engage in and uh, um, you know move it in ways that that uh, at some point at least we'll have the focus really get back to how does how do we learn and and what are the things that we can do to help kids be self-directed passionate learners all their lives. So with that, I'll just stop talking and see if anybody has any questions. Or Steve, if you want to ask some questions, um, you know, feel free. Thank you, Will. So it does occur to me that in some ways we're actually going through that very experience, which is we're using a technology to do something that would have been very difficult to do otherwise, to kind right. of mobilize around the topic. And so it, we're exemplifying that. Um, and you've done a very good job of sort of answering all the questions. That, that, uh, that I've been asking tonight. If you were writing that education <coughs> declaration, what would be the first statement? Well, I think it would be we have to focus on learning and not teaching. Uh, I mean, and that is in no way said with any disrespect to teachers. Um, you know, Gary, and, and I can't believe that I'm going to be the first to invoke the name of Seymour Papert in this conversation tonight. But Gary shared with me a link of a presentation that, that he gave, uh, that Seymour Papert gave many years ago. And, you know, he talked about the fact that uh, what we do in times of stress and what we do in times of change is, is we want to make education better by making teachers technically better, not technologically better, but by technically improving the, the practice of teaching. Um, and, and he said that that's just, you know, not, the, that's the totally wrong way to go. Um, you can see it. We're, we're going to incentivize teachers to do a better job of standardizing their classrooms because we can, because we can teach teachers to teach to the test better. We can do that. But um, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to, you know, uh, get, again, like as I said before, it's difficult to get teachers to look at themselves as learners. And this interaction at its base is just all about learning. It's not about teaching. It is about how we begin to create learning opportunities for our kids, whether it was without technology or now, whether it was 20 years ago or whether it's today. But the fact is that today we can create those opportunities in some really different ways. And those ways have value. And, and uh, if the people, if the adults in the room, um, if the administrators in the school, if those spaces aren't filled with learners, those spaces, I think, are going to be uh, quickly irrelevant, and, and more and more kids are going to have the opportunity, I think, to opt out of those very kind of top-down, you know, test-oriented spaces and go uh, other places where they can get 
um, more of their learning needs met. So I'm going to make a quick reference to Paul Peterson's uh, book, Saving Schools, uh, Paul from Harvard, who says in sort of a very optimistic way that, that a lot of this discussion and the, and the, ref, the pedagogically driven reform movement um, will, will probably end up being changed more by online learning and the technology than any sort of individual passions. Zeke, I'm giving you the mic. Go ahead and ask your question. Although Zeke went away. Oh, there you go, Zeke. Oh, there you go, Zeke. To turn your microphone on, turn the larger microphone button at the lower left of your screen. If someone else has a question for Will, please go ahead and raise your hand. I don't think Zeke is actually trying to ask a question there. Chris, go ahead. Go ahead. So Will, 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 Turn off their mic. Yeah. There we go. Um, so Will, how do you deal with the fact that the, the very, very soon would take schools away from a democratic ideal and take learning away from a democratic ideal and turn it into um, a rote sort of tutorial-based training would use much of the language you used about different learning environments and da 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 da. I mean, how do we, how do you not allow yourself to be co-opted, or your message to be co-opted by K12.com, by Tom Vander Ark, by you know those who would argue that learning is something that can be standardized and pushed out online? How do you make sure that this remains about? empowerment and about all of the things that you and I have talked about what we want for our children when so much of what is dominating that online space that you're talking about is pedagogically um, bereft of any interest of anything student-centered. And well, you've got one minute and I turned your mic off because of the echo, so you're going to have to turn it back on. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Chris, and, and you know, I'll go back to what Steve said about you know, Paul Peterson. Um, you know, it, the, the way that online learning is defined is not the way that online is not the online learning that we're talking about. I mean, we're talking in, in network spaces, community spaces. We're not talking about pushing out rote standardized materials in digital formats, which is basically like turning the textbook and turning the worksheets into a PDF. So, uh, you know, I, I, I absolutely agree with you that that is something that um, we have to do a better job of, of uh, identifying and defining for parents, for um, people who are in that education conversation, and you know, my time is up, and I don't want to take a lot, uh, a lot more time to answer that. But look, you're absolutely right. But it does go back then to what I'm saying, and that is, our message needs to be much more clearly defined, I think. Um, and and it's it's not going to be easy to do that because um, it's not an easy message, and the other side has the easy message right now, which is very very unfortunate. Well, thank you so much. We're in the home stretch. We've actually managed to stay on time. Really appreciate your being on for as long My as you pleasure. have. Thanks for if having you, me. If you want to stick around, I'd love to have you Absolutely. stick around. Yep. So Julie, I think this has been a great segue to your material. Steve, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it has been a fascinating conversation so far. And so um, I'm going to take us a little bit further than Will did and um, bring in the student voice into this conversation because that's obviously a really critical conversation. And apologies right up front to uh, the whole gang that's on here today. I'm going to use the horrible crutch of a few
few slides just to keep myself on track uh, here late in the afternoon. So uh, indulge me in that. So in terms of looking at the education environment today, I always start from kind of a problem to a solution orientation. And what we've been looking at here is the top five forces, as we call it, at work on the current education environment. I think a lot of this has already been discussed today, but thought it might be nice to review. This whole idea of a changing value proposition of education. What does education really mean? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to teach 21st century skills? Are we trying to get achievement on tests? Are we trying to prepare a workforce? Are we looking to make everyone a college graduate? You know, what is really this value proposition around education today? So I think that is still um, a challenge. The idea of the role of parents in education, I think, is also changing. And it's more than just a squeaky wheel parent at a PTA meeting. It's really about parents wanting to define a whole new level of destiny for their child and to also have a greater role in the accountability of the outcome. Uh, we've talked a lot today about teachers. And so I think this idea that in the past a one-size-fits-all teacher or teacher training model or teacher preparatory model or parent uh, professional education model is one that doesn't fit in today and is creating a force. The other one that, that I do a lot of speaking about is what I call a severe deficit of local leadership capacity. That's not to say that we don't have great administrators in our schools. In many places we do. But it may not necessarily have the right leadership profile for this uh, very chaotic, dynamic time that we're at. And so it is absolutely critical that we have a better level of leadership capacity. And then the one that really is our heart and soul is the idea that today's learners have different expectations for learning. So that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about here. I brought with me today this particular quote which we collected from a student last year through our Speak Up survey that I think is really interesting. I think it's really interesting to go out to the students, and Elsie even mentioned this early on, and to get their views into the conversation. And so I thought it was fascinating, that's why I've been carrying this quote around, that this 11th grade girl from Pittsburgh was able to so uh, articulately define 21st century education or, or learning. And I am um, especially keen on sort of holding that deep to my heart and thought I would share it with you. Uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with what Speak Up is. Um, in terms of uh, a national research project where we collect the views of K-12 students, teachers, parents, administrators, and pre-service teachers, share that information with the powers that be in Washington and state capitals as well as individual schools and districts, and then also always have the opportunity to uh, share with wonderful groups such as this. We've had about a, a million point eight respondents to surveys over the last couple of years. Anyway, so what is the speak up data findings where we do poll around learning and teaching with technology have to do with the future of education? Well, the big thing is that what we're seeing is that increasingly students' ideas about how to use all these different emerging technologies, and we can talk online learning, we can talk mobile devices, we can talk gaming, we can talk digital content, web 2.0, social networking. All of their desires around using these tools within education is in many ways a reflection of their vision for learning in general. And so what we did is we actually took it this year and, and created what we're calling a unique student vision, which really has three components, social-based learning, untethered learning, and digitally rich learning. So 
So these are what we're seeing as listening to students, what they're talking about as the way they want to learn. Sure, it's technology enabled, but when you pull back the technology piece, this is really defining what they see is what they need from a learning standpoint. So by social-based learning, what we're talking about, obviously, is leveraging communications, collaboration tools. But more importantly, it really gets to this idea of creating a personal network of experts, which could be another student. It could be a teacher in their school, in a different school. It could be students across the country. It could be uh, university professors. It could be professionals. It could be almost anyone that could have some bit of knowledge that the students feel are important for driving their own educational destiny. The untethered learning, I think, actually has a really special place when we talk about disadvantaged schools. Because what the students tell us is that they don't want to depend upon the resources in their own school or community, but they really want to be able to reach out and have learning that transcends their classroom walls to mitigate some of those deficiencies. And then finally, this idea of digitally rich learning is really at the heart of it about relevancy and making the learning experience a relevant experience and an experience that's productive for the students. Quite often, people will talk about the engagement component of technology. What's fascinating to us, and we've been doing this, as I said, since 2003, is that the students will talk about the engagement. In many cases, it's a, it's a head nod to the adults in the room. But when you really peel back the onion, they see this whole conversation about technology as being about productivity and less about engagement and really much more about productivity. So what we have found overall is that this, there's a real strong linkage between students' frustration over the unsophisticated use of technologies within their learning process and this whole bigger conversation about is this education that I'm, system that I'm part of relevant to my life or not. And that is one that we're really seeing um, coming to a juggernaut, shall we say. And in many ways, it's manifesting itself in what we're calling the free agent learner, which is a technology enabled new profile of a learner. And what I brought with me today to sort of spark some further conversation is what we've identified as key characteristics of this free agent learner. Um, and when I talked before about the expectations of the learner being different, this is really what I was mentioning, was the idea of this new profile. So what we see with this free agent learner is that they are, in fact, driving their own school bus. They are interested in self-directed learning. They don't feel a need to be tethered to traditional education. We talked about the personal data aggregation, the idea of pulling stuff together. Now, is all that stuff the most quality stuff, the most accurate stuff? Not necessarily, uh, but the students in many ways are feeling that they don't have another option but to do this on their own. The idea of experiential learning and the relevancy is really high. And in many cases, which gets to the assessment question, for these free agent learners, the process of developing content, of utilizing content, of leveraging some of these tools is as important and sometimes more important than the knowledge they gain at the back end. So it's really more about the process of learning than the knowledge acquisition at the, at the base. What we have been finding from our data is that in many cases today's typical middle school student is where we're seeing the greatest percentage of free agent learners. And um, very interesting to look at where the students are sort of lining up on that. 
So my questions, and I thought, uh, Steve, I would do something a little different. I want to throw some questions back here at the audience and, and sort of stimulate a conversation is that understanding this free agent learner with all of those different characteristics, how does school, quote unquote, or education, or even the current learning processes, how does that serve this learner? And how can we leverage this new learner's expectations to drive a new future for education? So how do we leverage the idea of student voice, student vision, the learner's perspective? to drive this new future, to drive a new conversation. So I'm open. Okay, so if you have a question questions. for Julie, then click on the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the window. Uh, I know you've directed the conversation back to the, oh, here we go. Okay, so Zeus, I'm giving you the mic. Go ahead and uh, click on the larger microphone button, the yellow one at the bottom. There you go. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you've brought it around back to the student and the student's uh, agency around uh, initiating their own learning. I think that that's being left out of this. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about what could be done on a policy level, what could be done on a community level uh, to make that happen. Um, I work with learning disabled students and I find that their ability to process is actually a lot greater than traditional education allows. And so they're actually not learning disabled. They're overly able. <laughs> and I, I, I use an interview process to help them understand how they think and then channel that. And I find that they can actually go at a very accelerated pace uh, and not, you know, in this sort of dumbed down remedial pace that schools oftentimes bring them. Well, I think that's really interesting about this, the students with challenges. and we. We actually, all across the country, both through the Speak Up survey, which is an online survey that's open to every K-12 school or district and school of education in the country to participate in. There's no charge for doing that. You get back your own data. As well as doing a focus group with students all across the country. Is that Hello? So Julia, we've lost your audio for some reason. I'm not quite sure why that is. Uh, Ken, are you on the line? I am, yeah. Is that Steve? Yes. And, and you are live. Everybody can hear you. And for some reason, Julie's audio paused, and it may come back in just a second. But I'm glad that you're actually through, and, and, and you're on in three minutes. We're going to hope that Julie comes back. I'm interested in having Julie address um, you know, all this good work she's done in the survey, how do we help elevate the discussion by virtue of what she's learned? And she has unfortunately dropped off. So we'll see if she comes back. And I think she just came back on. Okay, let me, let me find her and pull her back up. Looks like she's still having bandwidth issues, though. Yeah, and I'm not seeing her. Am I, did she put? Did she continue to come back as a moderator? So I wonder where no, she she's is. No, she's not. She's in the participants list. Okay, there she is. So Julie, we've brought you back in as a moderator. You have limited time, and it looks like you may be having bandwidth issues. It looks like you may be having bandwidth issues. Have you thought about how to take the research that you've done and help to elevate the conversation on a broader level? Conversation on a broader level. 
Yeah, I, I thought I was thirsty. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, we are always looking for ways to expand this vision that we have about the importance of student voice. We obviously share our data with Congress and the U.S. Department of Education and many governor's offices. But more importantly, we're very interested in how schools and districts are leveraging our speak up data, which includes not only the student voice, but the teacher voice, the parent voice, et cetera. And also how we can help in terms of sharing this data with influencers. And so, of course, you have a, a whole pool, I think it's 353 influencers right now on this line. And so being able to share data with them is something that we're very interested in, very willing to do, and look at that as a wonderful way to get this imperative out there about including students in the conversation. We've got time for one or two quick questions. Paula, I've given you the mic if you'd like to ask your question. And Paula, you turn your microphone on with a larger microphone button at the lower left. There you go. We in the chat have been talking through all the speakers and uh, what this speaker has brought out about bringing the learner back in, the free agent, etc. What we need to do is combine as a group of teachers, we all seem to be in the choir as we were talking earlier, we need to find a way to really bring out this free agent learner idea the teacher as learner idea. I've been reading book after book after book about social media, and I swear to God, without involving the union, as someone earlier suggested, I swear to God we could start a movement. I've seen a video recently about starting a movement. I've been reading how it works. We could do it. We just all need to get our our identities together, our emails together, whatever, and and make a start. There have been a million ideas in chat. Finding music. Great. Thank you, Paula. And I'm going to suggest you put your email address in the chat. Also, Betty, why don't you put in the link to the discussion forum at Edutopia, and that will be a good way of uh, gathering people together. Uh, it really, this really has been a wonderful afternoon, and so glad that You've joined us, and Phoebus, I think we're going to wait here because we are trying to keep strictly on time, and Sir Ken is on the line. Thank you so much for coming, Sir Ken. It's a great pleasure. So your audio is a little low, so if that phone can be as close to your mouth as possible, it will help us to hear you. I don't know if you're wearing a speaker set or if you've got a physical phone there. I'm not. I, I've I've been trying to keep up with the latest technology, but I've fallen back on the telephone. <laughs> I'm good. I'm glad. Okay, so those of you who are watching the chat, and there's a lot going on in the chat, do remember you can go up to View Layout and select the Wide Layout, and we'll help you see the chat a little bit better. Well, thank you for coming. One of the first questions that we've been asking guests tonight is, is there a particular vision that you have for teaching and learning that you feel really needs to be communicated right now? Well, I have a particular interest in, you know, within the broad spectrum of issues that are being talked about in the whole area of creativity, as you, as you probably know. And I, I believe that the, the role of creativity in education is still uh, very widely misunderstood and certainly underestimated. I was at the Education Nation Forum earlier in the week, uh, last week, and it was interesting to me, you know, that there are 
comparisons being made regularly now between uh, American education and the systems in what are said to be the high-performing countries around the world, notably Finland. And the reports that are given of education systems like Finland and Singapore and South Korea tend to focus on the disciplines that are just assessed through PISA. So that's mathematics, languages, and science in particular. And it, I think the message that is often taken from these comparisons in the American conversation is that consequently the success of these systems has come from the focusing in a really rigorous and direct way only on those disciplines. Well, the panel that I was sitting on last week had, among others, uh, representatives from uh, McKinsey and from the Finnish education system. And the point that particularly the guy from Finland was making is that the results they're experiencing in Finland are not coming from a, a narrow focus on particular disciplines. At the heart of their approach is a very balanced curriculum. They give equal weight to the arts. All children in Finland are encouraged and enabled to play musical instruments to be part of music education. They're about to make theater and dance a compulsory part of the curriculum in Finland. And at the center of their approach is the promotion of creativity and imagination. And this has absolutely been my experience, that if you want standards to raise overall, you have to have a broad approach to the curriculum and a way of celebrating both the creative talents of teachers, because teaching at its best is a highly creative profession, and the creative potential of the students. And as soon as creativity is put at the center of the process of teaching and learning, remarkable things tend to happen. And it, it does concern me that the messages, I think, that some people were taking from Education Nation that you certainly see in the press debates around education in the States are based on the premise that the only way to compete with these other education systems is to get more narrow, more focused, and more standardized. In fact, the lessons of success in other countries is the exact opposite. So how do we, Sir Ken, elevate the discussion from the current things that are being talked about to uh, the, the very passions that you have here that seem to be so important? Well, I think that there are, in, in the middle of all this, that there's a need for, so to speak, a theory of change. I believe that there is a moment now to affect the public conversation about education in America. And it's being brought about, among other things, by Davis Guggenheim's movie, uh, Waiting for Superman. It's, it's evident uh, in the focus that education nations brought to bear. It's also high on the agenda of the current administration. I travel across the country a lot. I live here now, as I'm sure you know, and I travel around the country a lot. And there is a very high level of concern about education. And the moment is right, I'm convinced, to really take the, the public conversation forward. And you know, conversations like this, that somebody was saying a moment ago about helping to create a movement through social media is certainly um, a possibility now. Um, I, I find a very high level of anxiety about education. So that's part of it. I think it's certainly important in terms of theory of change that we influence public opinion and also that we influence the political climate for education. 
you know, I often talk about No Child Left Behind, as we all do, and I always think it's important to remember that No Child Left Behind was cross-party. It was uh, very well-intentioned. It had admirable in, uh, intentions. It had very clear concerns for the future of education and for children and for the country as a whole that were very positive. The problem was the processes and techniques and instruments that the Act promoted were antipathetic to its purposes. I mean, apart from that, it was a slam dunk, really, you know, but it was, it was simply the wrong prescription for the problem. So it is very important to influence policymakers and to help them create a different climate. But the climate they have to help create is to encourage innovation on the ground. I think the real point of change is it happens from the ground up. It doesn't happen from the top down. And I think it's very important that schools and teachers and school districts and superintendents recognize that they don't have to wait for anybody to get on with this. I know wonderful schools uh, in, in America. Uh, you have Chris Lehman on who's doing great work. Uh, there are other teachers and principals across the country uh, where the schools are, I think, beacons of, of good practice in, in many sorts of different ways. But every school can transform itself in the next year, the next two years, starting tomorrow. You don't have to wait for anybody else to give you permission to do it. And in the end, of course, children go to school in particular places. They don't go to school in, in the committee rooms of the Beltway in Washington or the state legislatures. Their experience of education is this school, this classroom today. So for me, the, the change has to come uh, from the ground up, and that's based on customizing education to this community, these kids, and personalizing education to the individuals in the school. And that, to me, means the teachers as much as the students. And all the great schools I know, and there are many of them, haven't waited for anybody's permission to get on with it. They just get on with it. There's no point waiting for politicians to tell you it's okay. Sir Ken, you're speaking to a lot of audiences. Are there particularly influential people who really find uh, resonance with your message? Are there groups that we should be looking at specifically as well? Well, um, I do, as you say. I, I, I have an opportunity, uh, which is a privilege, to be able to speak to all kinds of groups, not just in education, but certainly in education. I, I've, I speak to uh, school principals groups. Uh, I, I speak, spoke at a range of universities recently, from Cincinnati to Kansas. Um, I've spoken at the NEA. I've spoken to all kinds of anyone. Frank, you'll have me. You know, Steve. I will. I will. Uh, I want to engage in this conversation because I think. The issues for education stretch from the beginnings of education right the way through life, and they apply as much in kindergarten as they do in universities. Um, and I don't honestly find that I'm met with some blank resistance. I don't find that people are looking at me wondering what I'm talking about. I think on the whole, that's why I'm saying I think there's a moment for change here. People are very clear that the present system doesn't work that there is a need for more than reform, there's a need for transformation. And they feel that no matter what role they're in. And I try wherever possible not just to talk to teachers, but to talk to administrators as well, because they're part of this. Um, but I also speak to companies and corporations, and I speak to cultural organizations. And everywhere I go, I find that there's the same restlessness for change. What people aren't sure is what sort of changes are needed. And that's why I'm saying that the the public conversation we have now shouldn't just focus on diagnosing the problem, which I think 
Waiting for Superman does very well, and in a very moving and powerful way. It doesn't tell us much about the solutions, I believe, and that's really what people need to hear. You know, what what would this, what would these alternatives look like, and how can we help to bring them about? And I think there's an opportunity for people who are running successful schools, successful school districts, or successful classrooms to put their voice into the public debate and have it heard. So I don't know, uh, Sir Ken, how much you know about Edutopia, but Betty Ray here and, uh, and Edutopia are co-sponsors of this event. And I think in particular, that's kind of their mission. So Betty, I don't know if you want to respond at all to that. Sorry, I was just out digging around for celebrities who are interested in education. I'd love to hear the question. Can you repeat it? Oh, well, no, just that uh, Sir Ken was saying there's a real need to uh, be promoting and showcasing schools that are doing a very good job. And I feel very much that that's what Edutopia does. Absolutely. Yeah, that has been our mission really since um, we began the magazine a number of years ago. And we are really trying to highlight that through our Schools That Work series, both through um, articles and videos and increasingly more interactive features as well to give teachers and administrators, parents, everyone in the greater education community um, some sense for what is working in education as opposed to what isn't. So that continues to be our mission. Yeah, thanks for bringing that on. Okay, thanks so much. So if you have a Maybe question. Can I just stay on that? Oh, please. I just want to say, I mean, I do know the work of Edutopia, uh, and I think they do great work. Um, I, I think the what their work illustrates and what my experience has also confirmed is that there isn't a single model. I think it's very important to make this clear that I, I, I think that often policymakers for education are working on the assumption that somewhere out there there's a silver bullet, you know, and that if they could just find this model that worked, <clears throat> you know, is it in Finland? Is it in South Korea? Where is it? Uh, you know, or is, is it in Minnesota? You know, is this, is this this one way of doing it that we can get everybody to adopt? That's what people tend to think about when they talk about scaling. You know, is there a scalable solution here? And to me, this is the wrong way around. That all schools are different. I mean, there are common standards that we should be aiming towards. There are common principles, and the experience of other countries illustrates them very clearly. That there are uh, no great schools which aren't populated by great teachers who are respected and who are given creative freedom by the school principal. There are uh, no systems which succeed in the way that we would like the American system to succeed through an unrestrained diet of standardized testing. That's often anathema. Uh, all the great schools have close links with their communities. But the key to this is diversity. I was following a bit of a conversation earlier. You know, often it's assumed that charter schools, and not in this conversation, but it's often assumed to be the case that charter schools are the answer. Well, they're not. You know, we know that there are good charter schools and there are poor charter schools, just as there are great public schools and not very great public schools. It's not about structure in the end, although structure has a part. It's, it is about the quality of the professionalism of the teachers and their ability and freedom to tune in to the particular learning needs of the kids they're working with. It really interests me this, you know, that in a system where we have what now in America, an average of a 30% dropout rate, all the programs that are designed to re-engage students with education, the remedial programs that are designed to bring them back into education, are all based on personalized learning. They all customize the curriculum to those particular students. And it's always been my experience that if education was personalized in the first place, these kids would never have dropped out. 
because they would have found it was relevant and engaging to begin with. So it means that there isn't, I believe, you know, a single approach. There are principles which can be applied everywhere, and they're the things we need to understand. But the way they're applied is about the judgment and connoisseurship and professional expertise of the teachers and the students acting collectively. And therefore, we need to promote diversity rather than uniformity in, in the models that we identify. We're going to take one quick question from Phoebus. I've given you the microphone. Go ahead and um, click on the larger microphone button to turn your microphone on. Hello, everyone. Thank you for um, joining. Um, I would say a good solution for this challenge would naturally be a mixed one. But uh, I'd like to ask, uh, what do you know about the application and findings in neuropsychology regarding uh, how humans learn, and how humans best learn, and applying that in the current material? And also, the second part of the question is, what do you think about the solutions that are demonstrated in India, where computer-mediated education without any help get, seems to um, do a lot on its own? I'm not saying that we should take the social part of the ed education. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. I'll just very quickly comment on time short. I, I think the, the work that's being done in India is fascinating. If anybody who's listening to this or watching online who's not aware of it, that there's a, a, a great thought on the head uh, showing some of this research where computers have been handed into into walls, literally, and kids have taught themselves very rapidly. I think what it illustrates is that, firstly, the young people are tremendously resourceful and creative and engaged and don't always need somebody standing over them to tell them how to do things. And plus, the software and the technology is becoming more and more user-friendly and intuitive. So it seems to be both natural but also a point well worth making. But a lot of what young people learn, like, every, like all of us, they learn on their own without direction. And in the absence of anything else, that's an extraordinary power that we encourage encouraging. But what's also true, I think, is that there is and will always be powerful roles for teachers, whether they're temporaries of students or teachers who are older, paid and professional. But that the roles of teachers are changing. New technologies mean that the old role, of, as it's often seen, of transmitting information just directly to is no longer the dominant role. I believe that roles are much more as neighbors, greater, as guides, mentors. And that, as the research illustrates, often kids uh, who have grown up with technology, particularly in the developed economies, have a much greater facility for it than some of their teachers do. So there's a real opportunity here for collaborative learning. And that's, I think, one of the great um, uh, horizons for teachers, you know, to be let off the hook of always having to be didactic, but to, to develop their own creative conversations with the students themselves. I think great teachers always did that. On, on the research into learning, I mean, it's a bit of a big issue to get into very briefly, but yes, we are finding out a lot about how uh, the brain works. Uh, there's still an awful lot that we don't know. Uh, we, I think, have always understood, in, in to some degree, the importance of different learning styles. And 
I think one of the big problems for education has been that the research on learning styles and on the, uh, the, impl the implications of neuroscience particularly hasn't filtered through into the public debate. One of the problems, I think, is that we have in our public education systems a very narrow view of ability. And the consequence is that we have a very broad conception of inability, of, of difference, of uh, abnormality, so-called. And I know all kinds of students and, and, and teachers, too, who have gone through their lives thinking they weren't very smart until they discovered that they thought in ways that were different from the ones in which they were being taught. Uh, I know students who struggled with all kinds of disciplines until the teacher came upon and understood their own learning style and the way that they engaged. And at that point, the whole field opened up for them. That, to me, is a central piece of the professionalism and artistry of teaching. It's not just about teaching people about a discipline. It's about mediating a discipline to the very many different ways of thinking and learning that are presented in any single classroom. Sir Ken, thank you so much for coming on. I'm clapping. I'm going to give a, a, a quick overview of where we go from here. Uh, those of you who have been on as guests, if you are able to stay, I'm sure the audience would love it. If you need to go, we understand. Uh, and this clapping that I'm doing is also for Julie Evans, because I don't think we clapped for Julie. And uh, Julie, sorry for that oversight. So at this point in time, one of the things we wanted to make sure that we did was to give educators an opportunity to speak out and, and to respond and have voice in this dialogue. And so if you are one of the, the participating guests and you would like to um, add to something you said before or uh, make an additional comment, please feel free to raise your hand as well. But my thought here is that we would do three minute um, microphone takes. So if there's something you would like to communicate, um, either an idea or a response to something you've heard, uh, we'll give you the microphone for up to three minutes, and then we'll take one follow-up question. And, uh, and again, thanks to all the panelists who've come. And we understand if you need to drop off, you can. But if you're willing to stay, I'm sure that people would appreciate it. Um, so I see uh, Deborah, you've got your hand raised. So I'm going to let you start. Oh, oh, I was really trying to figure out what all these things were and how to get into the conversation. <laughs> but um, I, I do think that uh, sometimes our absolutely correct analysis of what's wrong um, gets us so fascinated in that part of it that we don't just go ahead and uh, do the changes we need to do closest to where we have some power. And I, I would like to say, though, if you can, uh, that uh, for many teachers, uh, they are severely constrained where they are and have good reasons to fear of speaking up. And that um, uh, it's sometimes a luxury to be able to put up with the consequences of losing your job. So I think we have to remember both sides of it, that there are those who cannot move and speak out. I mean, I have a son who once lost his job for speaking in a public meeting. So um, that's, that's just, I think, one reason why it's so vital that people from the university level and other places um, who are not as, don't have as good a reason to be fearful to uh, bring up some of these issues that you've raised so, so wonderfully, and I thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Okay. And it looks like Sir Ken actually dropped off, but I believe he heard the first part of that, and uh, appreciate your voicing that. I'm giving the microphone now to Maggie. Maggie, to turn your microphone, you click on the larger microphone button at the lower left of your screen. 
Maggie, it sounds like you're on, but we're not hearing you say anything. Maggie, I turned your mic off. Go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard, and then raise your hand again, and we'll bring you back in. We could hear your mic was on, but couldn't hear anything. Scott, I've given you the microphone. Click on the larger mic button at the lower left to turn your mic on. Hello? Hello? You are on. You are on. Okay. Um, I uh, just joined, and um, how exactly is the format? Do you Are we actually talking to Sir Ken or just leaving comments for him? Well, Sir Ken has well, left. Sir Ken has left. And I'm going to ask you to turn that mic off to Dr. Myers. I'm talking to forgetting an echo. Oh, sorry, sorry. So we had a series of eight guests over the course of the two hours. Each took 15 minutes. Uh, we kept ourselves on schedule. I hope that was okay, but I felt that was important. Um, and now uh, we, we do have an hour for anybody, including especially educators, to have a chance to participate in the conversation. There was some criticism of the event that we were just looking at high-profile people, and so we wanted to give some time for educators to actually respond. So Scott, feel free to take uh, two or three minutes if you have a response to anything you've heard, or you can lower your hand and come back when there's something that you would like to say. Yeah, I, um, I think I'll come back later then. Terrific. Terrific. So, Colin, I've given you the microphone. Feel free to turn your mic on the larger mic button. Okay, uh, thanks for organizing this, Steve, and all the other um, contributors tonight as well. I really wanted to direct this at Will when he was talking about um, the idea of cheats and and kind of quick fix mentality that comes because students can go on and just find something because it's online. Um, I find this in math classes that they want to know the algorithm, they want to know how can I get the, the answer quickly without actually understanding that a lot of the work that's been done in the background is being lost. And a lot of the, the little um, quick fixes and the shortcuts, whether you call them cheats or information or data or anything else, is really a lazy way of getting to the product without going through the process. And then they're missing out on some of the major parts of learning, which is the actual process of going through and finding things out for themselves. And I see that as a danger of putting too much onto technology. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, uh, first of all, Dan Meyer has a great TED talk um, that absolutely should be required viewing for, you know, anyone in education these days what he talks exactly about that. And I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that I was uh, necessarily pleased with Tucker, um, you know, uh, going and finding those those cheats, although there is a part of me that, that kind of asks, well, why wouldn't he do that if he had access to it and if he had uh, those types of answers at his fingertips. I, I don't disagree with you at all, Colin, that, that uh, we need to make sure kids go deep. Um, but to be honest with you, the systems that my kids are in right now aren't really asking them to do much of that problem solving. They're not giving them a lot of opportunities to um, really go deep and to explore uh, things that don't have just one answer. Um, and I would 
would love to see more and more of that happening. It's just not something that we, I don't think, can assess, and therefore we just don't do it very much in our classrooms. Um, I know Gary probably has, uh, has yeah, don't apologize, I know, but I know Gary probably has some ideas on that too because he, he, he talks a lot about you know the dangers of, of easy access to information or at least that, that there's, uh, you know, there's a lot more to that conversation. Um, and Gary, I don't know if you want to chime in or not, but... Well, the only thing I'd like to add was something I typed a moment ago, which is that if simple things are easy to do, then it allows the hard things to be possible. Um, so looking up simple answers to, to easy questions, I think, is not a bad thing if it allows us to engage in, in deeper, deeper work, as you pointed out. So I'm going to move on to Phoebus. I've given you the microphone. Hello again. Uh, can you hear me this time? Absolutely. All right, I wanted to talk uh, really quickly about uh, mediating um, technology for student-driven education. I think that at this point, uh, research skills for young students are much more important than uh, learning the conformity that comes with the current boxed-up education system. So I would say, you know, as as a community, as the, the movement to change the education system, come together and find solutions and create solutions. Um, maybe you know, in this in this idea from the software industry, or the computer industry, um, to mediate um, education. And a few examples for that: if you look at any game, any online game or offline game, the the paradigms that they use to reward the player and so forth are very close to. Um, the paradigms that are used in psychology and learning. So I, I, I wonder how come there's not so much yet to be seen uh, in the education um, area, not to say industry, um, using these paradigms and using um, rewarding, motivated systems to, uh, to help students learn. And that, that's for young students. Um, later on, students, I think, as I said, the most important thing is giving them the tools to, to find the information themselves and then instead of just directing them being there as mentors and learning themselves as they're learning because if you if somebody allows someone to to um, um, pursue their own question they'll they'll be much much more motivated to find out how as much as they can find out about it. And I'm pretty sure that this, the teacher of the classroom, the mentor of the classroom, would himself be learning. But that changed the paradigm completely. Um, so, well, what do you guys think about all that? Deborah, you raised your hand. Did you have a response to that? Well, I, I'm, I'm I think that um, one of the great disasters that the previous speaker mentioned this is what's happened to early childhood education and the role of play. Um, playfulness <coughs> that we've eliminated for children. And I'm struck by the fact that Finland doesn't start even teaching reading until children are at least seven years old. And yet in a few years they're way ahead of us. So the increasing pressure on very young children to perform academic tasks uh, is I think having a serious, a seriously detrimental. And I think play is at the heart of democracy and uh, healthy education. Um, it's, it's the um, 
it's the most, the highest level, I think, of cognitive activity. So anyone interesting, I just recently we came out with a book called a Keep, Playing for Keeps about the, recess, the, the uh, life children have at recess at Mission Hill School. And I urge people to read it about the intellectual underpinnings of play, which we have allowed to lapse. And I think you've also agreed to come on the show to do a longer bit. We just haven't scheduled it yet, right? I hope so, because <laughs> I think this subject is so vital. There was a wonderful event in Central Park the other day in New York City called a Big Block Party, and it was really about looking at other ways which children and adults can play together. And uh, I think we will. We don't can't imagine the price we're going to pay from pay for the uh, cutting back on the fundamental of human growth and our respect for playfulness. So I'm just going to let Chris know. No, I didn't put uh, Deb on the on the hook there publicly because she actually had agreed to come on the show. We just haven't scheduled yet. And I've actually bought the books, three of her books, so that uh, I'm prepared. Shelley, I'm giving you the mic. Feel free to go ahead. We talked about the teachers having voice. Um, I believe Julie was the one who said that social media, there's a movement right now. But I've talked to many teachers and they feel uh, defeated, the ones that are not on blogs or Twitter or social media. And I've even had some say, you know, most teachers don't live there on blogs and social media and things like that. And so um, I just wonder how do we get those teachers, the majority of them out there who don't feel they have a voice, who feel they have to be with the status quo, um, to be empowered with that voice, to not feel that they are helpless. What can we who are on this um, do to, to just give them that feeling of support? So I want to ask Will if you might respond to that. Will, I know you do this professionally, but have you learned some things that would be helpful to those of us who, who are just in our own communities about how we might approach this with local teachers? Well, I, I think that, again, it comes back to making sure that teachers are, and, and stop me if this isn't the, the question that you're asking, but. I think it comes back to uh, supporting teachers to become learners around their own, you know, their own interests and their own passions first in the context of social learning tools online, giving them opportunities to connect with other people, kind of showing them how to do that. Um, I know a lot of places that are beginning to, you know, really almost personalize entry points into the conversation or into these tools by asking them, you know, what are you passionate about? And, and then coming up with resources that um, are good starting points for that. So, um, you know, I, I, I still think it comes back to uh, a teacher's ability to see his or her, her own learning differently. And then, uh, you know, to, to really work on, on making those connections and expanding those connections into networks or communities that have a a, uh, a common goal and uh, uh, working to, to either collaborate or, or share resources or whatever that, uh, um, you know, fosters that, that common goal, whatever that is. I don't know if that answers the question or not. I think it does, and, and I, we can ask a little bit further, which is have you seen people do this in their local community? Has there been a model or a pattern for helping 
uh, create an environment for teachers to become learners that, that, that we here who are listening could contribute to in our local communities? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the work that I'm doing with Cheryl Mustang Beach and, and powerful learning practice attempts to do that. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build um, teams or, or um, small groups of teachers in local districts or local schools that can then um, kind of build these ideas out to their own schools. Um, certainly, there are lots of schools that are using personal learning communities, the work that Rick DeFore is doing. Um, you know, what we're trying to do is kind of add that, that social learning network level to it, that community, that online community level to it that um, is, uh, is not really where those, those um, locally based PLCs go. But um, look, I mean, it, there, there's no question that these, these technologies allow us to connect and, and allow us to have conversations, um, you know, asynchronously and in different spaces in ways that physical space simply doesn't always uh, facilitate. Um, teachers are absolutely time stressed and um, any opportunities they can have to connect during those you know 15 minutes a day maybe whether that's at uh, you know noon or whether that's at uh, 10 o'clock at night um, giving them those opportunities to have a space where they can go and connect is really important but they have to value it they have to they have to value that interaction and that's the really hard part is is um, you know giving them an entry point that makes it valuable to them, so that then they become an integral part of that conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Shelley and Will Scott. I'm giving you the microphone. You click on the larger microphone button at the lower left of your screen to turn your mic on. Um, well, um, I just wanted to say, as an educator myself, um, you know, I've kind of you know gone through similar things to what you guys are talking about, about teachers adapting to social media and, you know, trying to use that to better interact with their students and better allow their students to explore themselves and, you know, fashion their own selves and realize a more self-directed learning. But it's my opinion through reading and through experience that it'll be very, very, very difficult, probably impossible, to change any of that within the traditional school environment because no matter how much technology you use and how many new means you are able to harness in order to achieve these things, you still have things like age segregation, you still have other things like the curriculum and I think that those two things alone and there are other examples too are just so um, antithetical to self-directed learning that at the very least for most of the students that's going to be very counterproductive. Um, I mean there's a, there's a great post that um, economist David Friedman put on his blog about how he educated his children and he talked about these, I, I can put it in the chat at some point if anybody wants, but, um, but basically you know when he talked about these two things in particular he said that um, you know, the idea of the curriculum that there's one set of human knowledge that every single person has to know. Um, I mean, that's part of the traditional school system, be it public or private. And, um, you know, I think that that's, I agree with him in that I think that that's plainly false. Um, beyond reading and writing and basic arithmetic, um, most of the stuff you learn in school uh, is probably not going to raise your marginal productivity 
and probably you know you won't actually end up using it in your daily life, but you spend all this time studying it because someone else tells you to do so, um, and you could spend that time actually you know discovering who you are as a person and directing your own energies and things that you actually like. And another thing that I mentioned before about age segregation, who's to say that all five-year-olds need to be with other five-year-olds or that all 17-year-olds need to be with other 17-year-olds? Everybody learns at a different pace. Everybody develops and grows at a different pace and in different paths. Um, and so I just think that as long as we are working within this environment, um, you know, as well-meaning and, you know, moderately successful as, you know, self-directed learning programs can be using technology. Um, I'm very skeptical about their efficacy just because of the institutional structure that we still have in traditional schools today. Thank you, Scott. Um, and I just, is this sort of a little bit of a reminder? We've got about 35 minutes to go. We've asked four questions tonight of the panelists or where we could. Is there a particular vision of teaching and learning that seems particularly important to communicate right now? How do we elevate the dialogue? Uh, is it possible to have a broad dialogue that's also productive, or, or inclusion and productivity and tension? And if you were writing an education declaration or a manifesto, what would you include in the first paragraph? So you don't have to necessarily address those four, but uh, you're welcome to. And uh, Phoebus, because you've spoken already, I'm going to give um, uh, some other people a chance here, but I'll come back to you. Leave your hand up. Frank, I'm giving you the mic. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, I just want to bring up one of the things that uh, I think we've skirted around tonight. Chris brought up the teacher messiah myth and the whatever it takes model, which quite honestly that slogan is plastered on banners in every school in my district. Gary talked about who would want to enter the profession if they're demonized. Diane and really everyone here has mentioned respect for teachers over and over. To what extent does this involve money? Teachers seem very shy about self-advocating for professional salaries and when the unions do it they draw fire from the outside. Yet if you ask any student in the classrooms why they choose, why they don't consider teaching as a profession, most of them will tell you straight up that teachers don't get paid enough for the amount of work that they do. Where do we, where do we build the solution to that problem? Okay, so Frank's asked an open question, and I know those of you have your hands up, you aren't prepared necessarily to answer that. If you would like to answer that directly, raise your hand, but also put a little note in the chat. and. Let me know. So Chris Simon, go ahead, Chris. So I think that um, we have to understand that if you look at survey after survey after survey, salary isn't what keeps teachers, what burns teachers out. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, certainly we can, you know, I mean, I'm all for getting teachers more money, but I think there's actually some other things that we can do to make teaching better, which we've got to cut down. Uh, teaching load, where high school teachers aren't seeing 150 kids a day, and we've got to make the life of a teacher more livable. I think that, you know, all of this, whatever, again, the whatever it takes model, the, you know, Tip Jeffrey Canada, we're going to do with whatever, um, is killing teachers. You know, you, you have to be able to go home and feel good about what you do. And, um, you know, teachers make a decent salary. 
um, great, clearly, but I mean, like, it's all of the other pieces that, according to every survey they've done, is what drives people out of teaching. Um, that's a bigger issue than salary, I think, and that's the thing that we can address. Yeah, Nancy's got it exactly right. Salary does matter, but it's down the list. Let's, let people be passionate and creative and smart and all of those things. Okay, I'm giving the mic to Isaac. Isaac, the microphone button is at the lower left of your screen. With such growth and detrimental attacks on public education and teachers, such as the recent film Waiting for Superman, I'm wondering what can our communities do to support creating real and transformative change in public education that works respectfully and also in collaboration with our teachers? Okay, so I've been trying to ask that okay, question. So to ask that Isaac, question. I have to turn your mic off. So you've done a better job of asking the question I've been trying to ask all evening, which is if, if there really does need to be a um, movement at the local level for us, what are the success stories? Who can we look to where we can see places where uh, educators and parents and students have done a good job of kind of rebuilding education in their local communities? And again, if you... Uh, if you have a response to that, don't raise your you can raise your hand, but but let us know in the chat that you want to respond to that specifically. And and while we're waiting, we'll keep moving on, uh, and hopefully Isaac we will get an answer. So Anne, number two, I've given you the microphone. Okay, um, I really just wanted to talk about when we were talking about you know meeting the kids where their passions and letting them drive the learning, and I. For the first time, I'm not teaching a testing class. I'm teaching an elective that's multi-level. And I am trying to do that, but I'm finding that the kids who are so not used to that mode that they don't even know. Like, some kids know what their passions are, but some don't, don't even know where to begin. And I don't know how to counter that other than to just try to walk them through you know, the project the first time, I've been conferencing with them, but they're finding it really difficult. Okay, so again, if you have an answer for Anne, go ahead and raise your hand. Scott, I think you wanted to reply to the previous question, so I'm giving you the mic. I think I could kind of reply to both of those things in that um, um, I think a good example of a teacher who really took back um, education as a community value and really made a big difference in some of your students' lives and at the same time kind of exposed a lot of the pathologies and huge flaws in it was um, John Taylor Gatto. And uh, for those of you who don't know who he was, he was the New York City Teacher of the Year for um, I think three years. He was the New York um, State Teacher of the Year twice, New York City Teacher of the Year, once, and um, basically like one of the things he talks about is that in today's society, in large part because of compulsory institutionalized schooling, um, one of our problems of society, our big crisis, is that we really don't live in communities, we live in networks, okay, and we live in these big impersonal networks that um, basically, you know, make us as a society easily manageable. And that's part of the big problem that you find in school, too. I mean, you, um, you know, Ghetto has actually calculated the time that children have to themselves. 
and they're, for, they're in school for six hours a day. They have to do homework for, you know, two or three hours a day. Uh, they watch television for, you know, I mean, two or three hours or something like that. And they eat dinner with their families. And in the small time they have left, that's not eaten up by uh, school and homework um, and TV. That's the time that they're supposed to fashion a self. And that's the time that they're supposed to discover who they are in their communities. Um, and for those of you who think that this is like some kind of natural way in which people learn the best, I mean, I can point you to the 1860 article of Scientific American, which attacked the very idea of homework as a soul-crushing, busy work that uh, took away children's natural desire for creativity. Um, so, like, I mean, honestly, if we really, really want to find a, you know, local solution and we want to take things back to their communities, to our communities, well, I think we should do the things that Ghetto did to mediate or even dismantle, when possible, the pathologies of our current system and, you know, try and, you know, rather than relying, you know, put ourselves in our children's place here. I mean, they rely on, I mean, they go to school for six hours a day and they expect, a, and some stranger is supposed to teach them algebra or biology or something, when in reality they're thinking about building a car or building a bridge or making a guitar out of a cigar box or being a doctor or something like that. Nobody ever asks them what to do, right? Um, so if we want to take our communities back and if we want to reinsert our children into our communities, I think that we have to internalize, uh, you know, community values that are so distorted and lost by uh, and, and perpetuated, I guess, by our current system. So I guess what I'm saying is to just let's try and think outside that, you know, structure, that in, this institutional structure that's been put on us from the Industrial Revolution and see if it's from there, rather than focus so much time and energy on improving or mediating this institution that clearly has not been working, or again, maybe it has been working, but for other purposes. Okay, so if anybody wants to respond to Scott, please feel free. I, I'm a, I did interview John Taylor Gatto. I was interested by two things. One was that 20 years ago, when I first read his book, Dumbing Us Down, he was really on the fringe. And now he seems to be much more in the mainstream of thought about the, the factory model schools being broken. And he did quit the system, which is an interesting solution. He, he now kind of advocates for this Bartleby method. So if those of you who know the Melville story, Bartleby the Scrivener, uh, where students would just write on the top of a test, I would prefer not to take this test. <laughs> and I think it's somewhat brilliant. Um, Okay, so I can't remember whose hand is still up. So I'm actually going to clear your hands, and if you want to raise your hand again, please do so uh, to come on. If any of our moderators who are still with us have an interest in um, responding to any of this, please raise your hand as well and let us know. I know that some have had to drop off, and you certainly are welcome to drop off if you need to. We've got about 25 minutes to go. I did want to make sure that we had time for those who wanted to have voice not to be able to do so after our uh, panelists, and so we will continue to move forward in that way. And Phoebus, I'm giving you the microphone. 
Hi again. I'd like to quickly respond to the last speaker um, and, and saying that I fully agree that uh, it would take much more effort to try and fix a system that is very, very, very broken in so many ways um, rather than seeing, um, think a new way and try and fix it. Um, and I, th I also agree in, in, in that the current system is disempowering. You, you, you take a student and you make him always follow and just follow and follow and follow and conform instead of you take a student and actually young children have the most amazing questions and they, they want to find out how to answer them. All we have to do is just provide information and provide a support network, a mentor network that allows them to explore those questions. Um, I have a theory that says if you actually allow the students to keep forming questions and pursuing them through, you know, in, in 12 years, which is the 12-year the education system that's currently being used, um, they would actually have to go through most of the sciences, they'd have to improve their English, they'd have to improve their math to be able to answer the questions they themselves, as, you know, student-driven um, um, young mentees and mentors themselves want to um, explore, want to answer. So to a previous uh, point that was brought up and quickly answered by one of the panelists, I definitely agree that play is very important, and but it's also a curiosity-driven task and it's driven by the student. It's almost like a real, real life um, experimentation by the student and it's an example of how we learn since we're born. Um, computer games seem to touch on that and expand on it and they're very successful at it. I mean, how many children out there are addicted to computer games and they spend countless hours learning about the intricate mechanics of a game and try and beat one of those kids? But what if we changed that and used the paradigm and made it more balanced, of course, also with real life activities, but gave it real context? I think that would be much, uh, much more useful. Um, instead of completely uh, ditching that or being afraid of the technology. Um, as an example, I, I just see myself uh, because I, I grew up in Greece and I grew up in a system that was very boxed and um, I ended up just dropping out at the age of 15, but I taught myself English and I think I'm good enough. I taught myself programming, I taught myself um, how to fix computers, I taught myself so many things through this medium, just this medium and no help. And this also touches with the latest findings in India where, you know, you have a computer just being set up in the middle of nowhere in, in a shanty town and kids with no instructions manuals, nothing, they just figure it out on their own. That gives you the proof that comes out of neuropsychology that says children are actually very, very, very efficient learners and very fast learners. If we could actually figure out a system to, to make the best of that instead of slow them down, um, with their own self-mediated um, curiosity, they would go much further than they do now. Uh, thank you. Gary, did you want to chime in? Um, sure. I, I, I would suggest one quick thing, and then I want to make a slightly longer comment. The, the quick thing is that um, it, it would do, serve us well to heed the advice of Deep Throat from Watergate when he told Woodward and Bernstein to follow the money. Um, you know, education Nation and, and the sudden crisis in bad teaching has to profit someone. 
and whether it's monetarily or ideologically, there are folks who stand to win when, when those of us who are working with children every day um, lose. So it's worth asking those questions. Um, I, on a more uplifting note, I think you've asked the question about what can we do and what can teachers do. And I think that a lot of that question can be answered in theological terms of right and wrong. Teachers know what to do. They know that a lot of what they're doing today is the wrong thing. And in that case, whenever possible, they should stop. Or they should at least make transparent to the children why they're doing it. And they're doing it for reasons other than um, the best interests of the kids. And if, if you're a teacher who remembers classrooms with blocks and gerbils and xylophones and dress-up corners and clay and Lego and pottery kilns and chocolate chip cookies and singing and dancing and field trips and Cuisinaire rods and dramatic productions, um, you have an obligation to bring those things back into your classroom teaching on a daily basis, not just for the children that you're so privileged to serve, but to um, be a model for your colleagues who, who may not know that that's possible or may not know what it's like to see how joyful learning can be because their own education and the mandates placed upon them have placed an emphasis on being animal trainers and security guards rather than teachers. So those of us who know better have a special obligation, especially in these dark times, um, to do better. We really all need to raise our game and raise our voices. Thanks again for this opportunity. Thanks, Gary. Frank, I'm giving you the microphone. Thank you. I want to go back to the point Gary just brought back up, follow the money. I want to go back to the money point because I think the way I asked it last time was maybe not exactly what I intended. My point is that if teacher salaries and spending uh, on, uh, if, if, if respect is the main drive here, that we keep looking at teachers are not respected enough, there's not enough respect given to teachers, if it's not money, what is the currency of respect that will give teachers that larger sense of a voice in the community? Uh, actually, you're good. Go ahead. Uh, I don't think it's. Um, so much how the community that is people, the parents around and the guy in the store in the corner treat us that makes um, especially elementary school teachers feel disrespected. Uh, it's uh, how our own system treats us that makes us feel burnt out, which is a term we use about appliances rather than exhausted. Because in fact, we are used like appliances, not like exhausted people. And there, there, uh, you know, even in the school of education I went to many years ago at Temple, the heads of the department uh, tried to persuade me not to go into early childhood education because it was a waste of my good education. There is a much broader assumption among the elite, if you want, that uh, young teach that teachers in elementary school care a lot at best, but that they're a little weak in the head. 
And um, I think we ourselves have allowed them to get away with that assumption, uh, that when we urge hands-on activity, we're not talking about minds off. And I have to tell you, Deborah, the more that you speak, the more anxious I am to have you on for a full hour and go through your books. Yeah, I think the audience agrees. No, it's just, uh, I think if you ask any teachers, you'll find a fund of stories about how in some ways we're treated like we shouldn't treat the kids. You know, that we pass on this mistreatment. I remember times in schools where I'd see the principal talk to a teacher with her children in line up in a way that uh, made me shiver. Um, that she was talking to the teacher in a way that uh, we unfortunately too often talk to children. And that's why I, it's a circular question. Uh, I think we should listen to the voice we as teachers use with children and know that that's actually not a respectful voice. It's the same voice that uh, we've been addressed. So I, some people used to say, well, they treat us like children. And there's unfortunate truth to that, but we shouldn't be treating children like that either. Move on, move on. <laughs> so if you have a comment you'd like to make, if you'd like to address one of our four core questions, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. I sense that we're running a little bit out of steam, which doesn't surprise me after two hours and 45 minutes. Thanks to Learn Central and Illuminate. Thanks to Bing, Microsoft, and Redo. Thanks to you for coming today. I'll give us a... Betty Ray, did you want to say something? I just wanted to jump in and thank everyone. I know it's been a very long day, and you know I've been in and out of the chat. It's been really exciting to see all the great ideas and um, just impassioned suggestions, and you know just creative brainstorming about how to move forward in this. And you know that was really what we were hoping to see. So I'm just really glad to see so many talented people coming together, and hopefully we can continue this in the Edutopia group at um, Reform Starts Here, and I posted the link in the, in the chat window, but um, for us to continue doing this, you know, this is one of those things that um, this is not going to be a problem that's solved overnight, and we just have to stay connected and stay focused and, you know, continue to listen to each other because there's a lot going on, and it's just really exciting to see all this happen. So thanks to you, Steve, and everyone else. And a huge thanks and a clap here for Betty Ray and Edutopia for um, uh, uh, very proactive role in setting this up and um, encouraging it and helping to organize it. Uh, and we've put the, the Edutopia webpage up and uh, put in a link again in the chat for you. I'm not seeing any raised hands, so I'm just going to mention that we do have a, an interview coming up this week. We do have interviews every week or most every week, uh, sometimes two or three. And Lou, I will get to you in just one second. Uh, this Thursday night, I am traveling for the next couple of days, but Thursday night, uh, DeMartino and Walk on the Personalized High School. And then next week, Sylvia Martinez, who many of you know, Roger Shank and Kathleen Cushman. So lots of fun events coming up. Yes, and there are recordings. Remember, at futureofeducation.com, you can go back and listen to the long session with John Taylor Gatto, which was really a lot of fun. So Lou, I'm giving you the mic. Go ahead. to turn your microphone on, Lou, you, there you go. Okay, good. Um, I was very intrigued by uh, what Deborah mentioned, and I study uh, how stress 
and attachment failures actually affect the brain. And I'm very interested in the neuroscience and how it applies in the classroom, and boy, does it ever. Um, I'm actually very intrigued by um, the voice, and what Deborah mentioned actually has a phenomenal correlation because it's, it's actually been shown in robust scientific studies that it's the voice tone that is detected by the brain first. So the voice of the teacher enters the right brain first, and the right brain is where we find context and where we appraise what we've heard as a threat or as uh, a green light to say, you can come on in. And when we speak to students in threatening tones, which we all know with all of the stress and pressures that teachers are feeling and that kids are feeling from parents and from their environments, Stress is already neurotoxic, but when we have a voice that is harsh, that is threatening, it actually impedes learning. And so we have this, this loop, this unfortunately this defensive loop that goes around um, where if we just shifted the tone of the voice, even just the way it's paced, and even taught children uh, about the brain in a very accessible way, we could use what we know about the brain and, and the newest brain science to completely change curriculum, to change the way we teach and to change the way we treat teachers. But I mean, I have a son who told me last year, Mom, I go to school in the morning and I turn off my brain and I come home and I turn it back on. And I think that there's so much in that statement and if we know what the latest neuroscience shows us about what part of the brain is being lit up when kids are being pressured to achieve through test scores and the way that we're approaching them. What would teachers and administrators and principals and even policymakers do differently if they knew that this lights up the back of the brain, which is our old brain, which is fight, flight, freeze, which has nothing to do with learning and actually impedes it? and there's a whole biochemistry of shame attached to that too. How about we try to think about reform in such a way that we're uh, catering a curriculum and a way of teaching and a way of training teachers so that we light up the front of the brain, which is where we connect and develop empathy, even morality. All these things are, are on brain scans. Thanks, Lou. Uh, Betty, Ray, did, Betty, did you have another comment you wanted to make? I did, Steve. Yeah, I was just in thinking about all the discussions and everything people have said over the course of the, the afternoon. One thing that's emerging for me is that I see a lot of us talking a lot about all the amazing technologies and the amazing science and all these, you know, we're on this forefront of all this incredible information explosion. And, you know, and, and similarly or at the same time, there's a real call um, for more metrics and measurable ability, you know, abilities for us to really understand using numbers to you know, whether it's Common Core or standardized testing or whatever it is, um, to apply some of the, the knowledge that we're getting and, and to quantify it and to make decisions. And I think it's really important for us to think about how and where and wh what's important, what kind of data is useful, and what kind of data is really cluttering and clogging the system. So, you know, as we kind of go forward in our various pursuits, to me that's a really important question. Is this something that is measurable that we can utilize, or is this something that we can quantify that will actually hurt us? That's really it. Well, I'm sorry I got slightly distracted there, but I'm going to raise something and, and tell me, Betty, if I'm if I'm close to what you were talking about. Um, mm -hmm. I've I've been very uh, reminded lately, of, or I've been reminded lately of 
the total quality movement in the 1980s and the degree to which information was given to frontline workers for them to help solve problems. So the information was really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. but it, wasn't used as a, it wasn't used as a hammer. It was used to provide those who, who wanted to make things better with an ability to figure out what was really going on. So information, for me, at least within that context, is really needed and really helpful. It's when information is used as a hammer that it seems like it's it's um, counterproductive. Now, again, I apologize. I wasn't fully paying attention, so if that didn't relate, I will withdraw it. No, that was good. I mean, it's exactly that. It's just where you know, if we can use neuroscience, it's fascinating, and we should use it. It's a great tool, but you know, but as Gary said, we don't need standardized tests. We don't need tests in this view. You know, that's debatable, but we can certainly you know that, that how that how we get how we apply that data to understand students in, in you know our world is really a key piece that I wanted to represent. Thank you. Scott, I've given you the mic. Please feel free to go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I guess to follow up with um, what Lou said about, um, you know, how could we really, you know, measure and find and pinpoint those parts in the brain which are activated when children are robustly and efficiently learning and all that. Well. I like to think of things, I, I've been thinking about this for a while and I'm just going to put this out there and I hope it, you know, it's useful for you guys and it helps you think about uh, things by framing it in a different way. But I'm convinced that, you know, if we taught children how to play, I mean, I live here in Spain, right, so kids love soccer, they call football here. If we taught kids how to play football by making them go to class, and copying down, um, you know, who the forward, what the striker, where the strikers play, how they play, uh, what their positions are, what all the rules are, what the goalie does, what the center does, what the defensemen do, um, and we made them memorize these things for tests. Um, I'm pretty convinced that overnight you'd get another generation, you get a generation of Spaniards that hated football, or anyone who hated football, um, and I think the same thing would happen if we tried to teach children how to play video games uh, using the traditional model of sitting them down in front of a board and doing stuff like that. Um, you know, but then again, like simple common sense observation uh, will tell you that when you watch children doing something which interests them, educational or not, you know, such as playing video games, even though I suppose that has educational value too, you know that, you know, their brain is really, really active. Like, they really want to get into their game. They want to beat the level. They have their goals set, and they want to do that. So my guess is that um, if you really want to measure, you know, how kids learn best, um, then I guess those, that would be, personally, those would, under those conditions, you know, that would be the scenario under which I'd be measuring what kind of brain activity was going on. And, you know, it just seems apparent to me that that's just a matter of motivation and enthusiasm and children applying their natural genius and creativity to problems or tasks that they see in front of them um, from internal necessity. And if you could do that for other things like mathematics or reading, um, so much the better. And I think there's pretty good evidence that you can, seeing as how people who graduate from the Sidbury Valley School, for example, despite the fact that nothing is obligatory, every single graduate from the school 
ends up learning how to read and learning how to do basic arithmetic and ends up being more self-directed in general. So um, I guess what I want everyone to take away is from that is just imagine um, what kids would, what kids' attitudes would be towards things that they like to do if we taught it to them the way we teach them reading, mathematics, history, biology, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks, Scott. Colin, I'm giving you the mic, and this may be our last comment or question. Okay. Um, just want to respond to the to the fact of of teaching maths like that. That's not the way maths is taught everywhere, um, and it might be an assumption that that's what's happening. Um, I think what surprised me is that nobody's really mentioned about e-portfolios. And if we want to be really subversive, uh, what we should be doing is actually helping all of our students build their own e-portfolio, their own online digital footprint that they can go around to future employers, to future colleges and say, never mind my grade, never mind the score, never mind the letter that was given to me. This is what I actually did at school and then say, and for that, that we, we take it out of the hands of the vested interests, the big examination boards with all of their grades in their letters and say, okay, I got a C, this is what I've done, this is what I can do, this, if you want to employ me, this is what I can do, and I've got the evidence to prove it. And this just seems to be something that, that you can, give the grades, you can teach what you're supposed to teach, but you can help the students to subvert the system with evidence of what they've actually learned and evidence of what they can do, and a grade in a letter doesn't give them that. Colin, that was sincerely fascinating, and uh, you've given me something to think about. Thank you so much. I am going to call the night. I think we are done. That was a almost uh, three hours, and that was really terrific. So again, I'm clapping for, for Betty Ray and Edutopia, for all of you coming, for our panelists tonight, this afternoon and tonight. Uh, yes, my brain hurts too. Um, that, we ha that we're finishing with 136 participants down from 360 or something uh, is, is amazing. I know it's the choir. I know that we are. Uh, in an, a little bit of an echo chamber, but I feel like the audience is expanding, and that's uh, really valuable. And and there, I'm going to go back and listen and look for some ideas for different um, interviews to hold and activities that we can do, and hopefully we continue the dialogue, uh, especially at the Edutopia site um, and at sites like Fireside Learning from, from Connie Weber and Classroom 2.0 and FutureofEducation.com. So thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks to our panelists. Thanks, Betty. Any final words, Betty? Not for me. It's been great. I really appreciate it, and we'll look forward to continuing dialogue with you know with everyone else as you know as we go forward. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, everyone who's still stuck around. Okay. We'll we'll turn off the recording in a minute. We'll ask you to leave the room so that the recording can process. Hope you have a great evening. Hope you'll stay in touch either through the interview series or through the Edutopia website. Good night or good day, depending on where you are. Take care. Bye.
So one way we'll continue the conversation is, although Gary Steger has left, is that we have promised to do a Gary Steger interview series. So that will probably happen as well. And any other ideas that you have, please feel free to email me. The recording will be posted at futureofeducation.com. On the left-hand side of the front page, you'll see a link to the recordings. And depending on how long it takes for that recording to process, it'll be up tonight or tomorrow. Good night, everyone, or good day. Take care.